The internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore it. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shagoths, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we'll discover or build a god when we reach the cyber ocean floor. People claim to remember past lives. I claim to remember a different, a very different present life. The psychotic drones, where the mystic swims, they're drowning. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Astral Flight podcast, where we navigate the digital world through art and culture. As usual, I'm joined today by a very special guest, uh, but this guest is near and dear to me in a way that's unique from all my other guests. Uh, but before we get there, I want to introduce one of the greatest, hardest working men in podcasting today, elevates the medium to something beyond podcasting to some new form that uh, maybe doesn't have a name yet. It's Mr. Daryl Cooper of the Modern Made Podcast. Welcome to the show, Daryl. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Yes. Now, um, you have garnered quite a lot of, of uh, well, you've garnered a name for yourself beyond the Martyr Made podcast, which was already kind of making waves in the podcasting world with your thread, your now infamous thread on the potentially stolen election. Well, maybe we just call it the stolen election here. Um, and you actually got called out by name by Tucker and Donald Trump in the same weekend. And I had been following you for a long time on Twitter. And I watched your follower count go from about 7,000 to about 90,000 in like 36 hours. And it was just the craziest thing I've ever seen on Twitter ever uh, before or since. Yeah, it was it was really crazy because there's a lot of posts or threads out there. You'll see that, you know, have more likes, I guess. There's, there's, there's ones out there that are throwaway kind of meme posts with 150,000 likes. I think that post, that thread has maybe 50 or 60,000 likes, but it's got like 50,000 retweets. And if you go down through, it's like a 30 tweet thread, like every one of them from beginning to end has like 20, 30, 30,000 retweets. It really did kind of take over a large chunk of the political Twitter for, you know, at least a few days there. And it was incredibly surreal. Like you said, I had like 7,000 followers at the time. So the people I was writing that thread to were like you, you know, people I you know, right. who had been following me because of the history podcast for a long time. And it wasn't really meant for a wider audience. It just, and I, I, I wrote the thread kind of on a, on a lark, you know, just based on a conversation I had had with one of my friend's moms and um, yeah, very strange. <laughs> yeah. It must've been, it must've been a trip too, because it's not like you already had a, a, a ton of fame and recognition. I mean, had, had Tucker Carlson ever mentioned you or indicated in any way he watched your show before that? Oh no, no, nothing like yeah. that. I mean, you know, I had a hardcore sort of, um, small group of, of fans of the history podcast who were very dedicated and that I had a really good and int intimate relationship with, but you know, it was a relatively small number of people. So, and then you've since then gone on Tucker and you, um, and you had the Jocko podcast, although I think the Jocko podcast had already existed at that point. Yeah. But, um, but now you're podcasting full time and you have the uh, the Martyr Made Substack, which everyone needs to subscribe to. And if you're a paid subscriber, I can guarantee you, I can tell you from experience because I am, I'm one of the first ones that uh, the behind the paywall content is, is, is top notch and next level. And I've already 
thrown some of the things into conversation with people that I learned from that. And they're like, well, where, where did you learn that? Where'd you hear that? And I referenced them, you know, to your show. And I'd like to talk about a couple of the episodes that are behind the paywall because there's some really interesting stuff in there that's very relevant to things that are going on today. But before we get there, though, I just want to briefly uh, embellish myself here because for me, this episode feels like it's coming full circle in many ways because me and you have been acquainted with each other online for, I think it's been 10 to 12 years at this point. Yeah. I think so. Something like that. When did you start uh, Modern Me? Modern Me? Was it 2014? 15. 15. Okay. And I knew you before that. So we yep. were just kind of um, hanging out in different forums, really discussing philosophy. And uh, I was a little bit, when I approached you, however long ago it was to be like, hey, what's up? I'm back. I'm back on the scene. I was a little hesitant because I was quite the normie back then. And uh, some of the more esoteric right wing takes you had um, threw me for a loop. And I didn't know, I, I mean, I didn't barely even knew what to think. It was so far outside the box of, of what I had been, you know, paying attention to at the time, especially back then. Um, the, I, I was, I guess I'd call myself apolitical at the time, but vaguely liberal just because I would take the mainstream media headlines in and this stuff, the information you were offering to me was just so far outside that, that, uh, the thing that you led me to really, I mean, and I had paid attention to you all the way through, but the thing that you had really introduced me to that really was like the sea change for me, the paradigm shifting experience was reading Decline of the West, volume one and two. Now, I know we kind of reconnected maybe back in 2019, and I had talked to you a bit, and you said people were still asking you about the Decline of the West podcast then. Is that they still, still that. did they yeah. do? Yeah, that's yeah. awesome to hear. That's awesome to hear. Yeah, it's a shame that, you know, that thing got discontinued. Um, for reasons that were at least mostly outside my control. But um, yeah, I think if, if we would have kept doing that podcast, I think it would be a, a huge success right now. But so it's unfortunate. Many of the things I want to talk to you about, which are prescient and timely, uh, you were talking about back then. And um, about when did you read Spengler? When I was 19. Okay. So, yeah. it, you know, it, it was one of those books that, you know, like if somebody asks you, especially once you're up into your thirties or forties, they ask you what your, you know, your favorite book is or your favorite books are. It's really hard to just say, this is my favorite book. What you really have to do is break it down into like, you know, well, when I was 19, I read decline of the West and that was like just a completely mind bending book that <clears throat> changed the entire direction of the way I thought about the world and like my own just psychological and intellectual development. Um, and then maybe you get up like a little later, you know, I'm 27 and I read, uh, you know, I don't know, um, the ever present origin or, uh, you know, maybe somebody reads Francis Parker Yaki or something. And, uh, it kind of makes it so that, you know, relativizes that previous work a little bit so that, I mean, even, I could even say something like, uh, you know, I made the mistake that so many young men make, uh, about 16, 17 years old of reading the fountainhead and then Atlas shrugged and then all the rest of Ayn Rand stuff. And that sent me off on, you know, an Austrian economics libertarian kick into my early 20s. And I can look back at all of that now and just, you know, in, in humiliation that I was ever that into, you know, Atlas Shrugged or something in my late teens. But at the same time, you know, you look back on it and, and realize that it was really important to my intellectual development. It kind of probably prepared me for the later things in important ways. So, yeah, Decline to the West, you know, I've probably read it five or six times now because it's one of those books that 
there, there, there's just so much in there. It's so, it's so remarkable that Spangler had as much of that information in his head that he did in, in a single lifetime, you know, while being like a high school teacher, because, you know, it's a book that you read it. And the first time I read it, there were, I mean, on every single page, there were references that I didn't understand. And I just sort of glided right on past them. And then the next time you come back and read it, it's a richer experience because you, you know more about the history he's talking about. You know, eventually what I did like the third or fourth time was I just sat down with my laptop next to me. And every time I, he mentioned a work of art or an artist, or uh, I would just look it up as I went along. And so it took, it took a good six months to get through it, but that was very fruitful for sure. I could see that that's its own education, especially reading it at that that young of an age. See, for me, I had a, a different experience. I was 40 when I read it and I hadn't really, um, I, you know, I, I had been autistically uh, reading, obsessively reading, you know, different thinkers, both fiction, criticism, philosophy, which is how me and you came across each other online. And it was all sort of this like big cacophonous, like pile of dross in my head that I didn't really formulate a worldview. I had an Im immature worldview that was a holdover from my twenties. Um, which is why I said I was apolitical. I was sort of already go going away from that just through the normal trajectory of one's life as you get older and buy a house and have kids and stuff like that. Um, and I was already sort of like coming out of that old perspective and forming a new perspective. And for me, reading Spengler, uh, which I directly attribute to you, by the way, for having followed you for those years and you talked about him so much, I finally picked it up. And he kind of took everything in my head that I had been reading over the last 10, 15 years and kind of organized them into one coherent, cohesive uh, world historical picture, which is a term I'm taking from him, the world historical picture. Um, and he does that. And, you know, the book is 850 pages long, and it's actually pretty astonishing how much he can accomplish in, in that few number of pages, because he really does include everything from economics, politics, history, religion, art. Um, so for me, mathematics, yeah, I mean, mathematics, yeah. And crazy. for me, yeah. having, you know, spent so much time <clears throat> reading uh, ancient history, philosophy and stuff like that, it put it all together and uh, it was able to kind of give me this this picture going forward. And I mentioned before I reconnected with you and I wanted to tell you, like, hey, I, I read Decline of the West, like I understand you now. Um, for me, that kind of helped give me the vision to start doing what I'm doing now because it is, you know, sort of a project. And I try to put the, the podcast episodes out together in a way to sort of con uh, convey some, some sort of cohesive uh, comment on the modern world. And um, I'd like to get specifically back to some things in Spengler and talk about them. But before we get there, uh, today's the 9th of June. I'll be putting this out a little bit, a, bit, a little bit later. So a little bit of time will have gone past and perhaps in our hypermodern fractured psyche uh, uh, era now, people will have forgotten about the Uvalde shooting. The Uvalde shooting happened, I think it was a week ago, a week and a half ago on the day we're recording. And I know you're doing some work to make an episode with Jocko about that. Has that been released yet or about when is that coming out? Uh, no, I'll put it out this weekend. I don't think that that our discussion here will probably interfere with much of that, you know, that that's a, um, you know, obviously like people who don't know Jocko, he's a former Navy SEAL commander, uh, very, um, how would you describe his mentality? But like, so we talk about the law enforcement response. We talk about guns. We talk about, you know, some of the things that are uh, probably a little more surface level. Okay. Than we'll be interested in here. So. 
Oh, good. Because it's I did a good wanna... discussion. It is a good discussion. We do talk a lot about the culture as well. And, um, you know, the, the, the reasons that the culture might be yielding up so many of these monsters specifically at this time. But uh, I think you and I will probably go a few layers deeper. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I didn't want to vulture off of uh, Jacko and you, but um, <clears throat> you know, the first thing I think of to, to, to inaugurate the discussion is and it just hit me today as I was getting ready for this show that I saw Bowling for Columbine 20 years ago in the theater. And it doesn't matter what you or any of the listeners think about Michael Moore or that movie. The simple fact that a documentary was made 20 years ago trying to deal with all the same issues, uh, the same phenomena, and try to figure out what's behind it. And I don't, do you feel we've made any progress in that 20 years? Well, I mean, obviously we've made no progress in trying to get, uh, you know, the phenomenon itself under control, but I, I don't think we've made any progress at all uh, toward understanding Agreed. what what's you know what's contributing to the phenomenon i mean i you know for for uh i'm, I'm going to do a, an episode on this whole issue for my Substack as well just an individual episode and so i've been reading a lot of the books that are out there some of them about the individual cases you know columbine or whatever some of them just about you know about uh by by psychologists talking about the mass shooter mentality and so and they're all, they're virtually all trash I, I mean, you, you just you feel like you're reading something by somebody who is almost consciously refusing to look at the most critical issues. You know, I, I would say probably the, the most insightful one that I've that I've read and, and it's not trying to be as insightful as, as some of the other ones is uh, the one by Dylan Klebold's mom, Sue Klebold. Um, I I can't remember what it's called now, but uh, a mother's reckoning. And it's, you know, it, it's by the, one of the Columbine killers moms. And, you know, the Columbine one is so interesting because, <clears throat> you know, it really doesn't fit the mold of the vast majority of the other mass shootings we've seen. For one thing, you've got two people doing it together, which by itself is, that's, that's, that's not a minor difference you know uh, when you think about like the isolated loner who's just off by himself spiraling into this psychological oblivion into a place of you, th that's just a totally different like psychological dynamic than having two kids there that are together who are meticulously planning this incident for like a year right. very high agency attack you know where they learn how to make propane bombs they learn how to make pipe bombs uh you know, they, they go through a tremendous amount of contortions to hide their intentions and sort of where they are psychologically, even from their parents and their close friends. Um, you know, they, 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 they plant a propane bomb across town to go off to draw the police away while they do their attack. These propane bombs, thankfully, didn't go off, but they, they went through the trouble of doing that and, and planned it out over the course of a year. And so the Columbine one was almost a like a non-ideological terrorist attack in a way that like the Uvalde shooting or Sandy Hook or something was not. And these kids, you know, you can read their journals and, you know, clearly they're, you know, like, like you can say that anybody goes in and shoots up a school is mentally ill, obviously in some way, but these kids were not mentally ill in any, you know, they, in, in any like traditional way that we would use that word, like the kind of person, like there's no set of laws that you could have, uh, drawn up that ever would have 
justified taking those kids off the street and putting them in an institution or something like that. They just, they, they weren't mentally ill in that way. This was something that they very much chose to do together, built each other up psychologically so that they could accomplish it. Um, and they did it for a, a very specific reason, you know, sure, they might have been suicidal, they might have had a lot of rage and all that. Those were the preconditions that would drive them to be able to actually get past the boundary and go do the act. Um, but they're very clear in their in their own writings and in their videos of what it is they were trying to accomplish. And it was that they were trying to unleash this demon into the world. And that's exactly what they did. And uh, what, what is this demon? Well, you know, I, as I've been reading a lot about these spree killings, um, I've been trying to think of like how to how to conceptualize it, right? There's a, uh, you know, we're obviously very sort of a materialistic society, like, you know, philosophically speaking. And so we, we think of everything just in terms of like, the, like, as far as our understanding really allows us to go on something like that is that maybe there's like a social contagion of some kind, right. Yeah. That spreads through the media to other people. And then there's copycat murders and so forth. And that is, I think one way of talking about something that people in a prior age would have understood and spoken well, of to jump in real quick that was the malcolm gladwell uh new yorker article that was his take and i th and i remember just laughing at it yeah when he put it I out i mean you know like look there's something uh, uh, to the idea of like you know it's it's a uh, the four minute mile phenomenon right people were trying to breach the four minute mile uh running for years and years, decades, and the people thought it was impossible that humans just couldn't possibly run a four minute mile because all the greatest runners in the world tried and failed. And then one person did it. And then within a year, like 20 people did it now, like, you know, everybody who's like a super elite runner can, can, can do it. And so there is something where now that this is sort of recognized as a possibility, it's a behavioral possibility that's out there in the world that that is going to that that, that is going to happen. But I think like, Sometimes like maybe a more fruitful way of thinking about it. And I am beginning to really come around to the idea. Maybe, maybe it's my own, you know, my, just my own sort of uh, my own bent that, that sends me in this direction, but to think of this, these kinds of things as, uh, as a, as a demon that is out there in the world, right? If you and I mean that in terms of like, you know, like, a, like the idea of an egregore, right? Which is like a, it's like a, it's like a, psychic an autonomous psychic entity that is conjured into being by the collective psychic energy of a group of people who's who are aligned well enough that this you know that this being comes into actual existence and so if you go like through traditional mythologies and fairy tales and so forth you know these things can be an egregore can be uh can be summoned by uh, an individual, um, it would have to be like an extraordinarily powerful sorcerer or something who could maybe summon a being that is, uh, you know, going to advise him on some problem or that he's going to go send to attack some person or, or, or something like that. Or you could think of like a small group. You have like these occult groups like, uh, you know, William Butler Yeats was a very famous one where he had his little occult group that was, they were focused on, they would do these elaborate rituals to summon these, these beings that were not uh, you know, to, to be clear, these were not like a being that lives down in hell and they're creating a gateway to sort of allow this thing to come up into our world or something like that. That this is something that is being created out of their, the, psych the collective psychic energy of their group. Now, 
when you're talking about a small group, uh, you know, they can only be accomplished if the people you're talking about uh, are, are extraordinarily focused, have very powerful will. And even then it re usually requires the assistance of elaborate ritual and drugs or other things like that to, to make it happen. Now, when you get to very large groups of people, <clears throat> you know, this thing can happen, this, this, this phenomenon can occur uh, spontaneously. And whether the people want it to or not, you're talking about maybe millions of people or whole societies that, uh, you know, what you think about, like, for example, how I always find it interesting that we don't really, nobody gets kidnapped by like trolls anymore. And uh, nobody sees fairies anymore, really. But we see aliens, right? And I'm not the first one to say this. Obviously, you got people like Jacques Follet and others who, you know, they think that it, th those are the same things, you know, that these demons that used to come to people in the night and, um, you know, the trolls or, or other monsters that would beset villages and so forth that we don't, you know, we, we just have a different technological framework that we sort of deal with the world in. And so now we've changed it to like aliens. And so when you see something like the 1973 uh, UFO craze where, which apparently like seems to, I've done some research on this and it, it basically seems to have started because of, uh, I think it was in Dallas, they, some newspaper ran an article that was just, it was some old article basically. It was bringing up something that happened like long ago, like, oh, remember when like some UFO sighting occurred, you know, back in 1952 or something like that. And then that got picked up and kind of went national. And then over the course of the next six months, there were just thousands and thousands of reports coming in of people seeing UFOs and so forth. And you say, well, <clears throat> you know, there's just a bunch of like, surely there's some people who just uh, maybe want attention or they're pulling a prank or whatever. But I don't think that's the case for everybody. I think that it's been pretty well demonstrated that a lot of people really, really, you could put a lie detector on them and they believe that they've seen these things. So you ask what's going on and you can call it a hallucination or you can think of it as something that's sort of being called into, into being by uh, the, the collective focus of all of these people. Well, <clears throat> um, you know, and, 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 you know, speaking of like trolls or aliens or something, I think that these things, you know, uh, uh, that these things um, tend to be more powerful and maybe more common when they are rooted in like deep instincts and uh, like profound emotions, like, like fear or rage, you know, that's probably why so many of these things do tend to be negative. If you think of like, uh, sometimes you, you know, it's very interesting. If you look back at like um, the early hieratic city states in like Mesopotamia or, um, you know, the Mesoamerican societies, the Aztecs and so forth, you, you have these really, in, it's really interesting because these are city state societies, right? And we hear that they all had a patron deity. You know, you have uh, Huitzilopochtli and Tenochtitlan. You have uh, um, Enki is the patron deity of Eridu, the Sumerian city-state. And they all have these. Uh, and the, whole, the cities themselves are built around this central pyramid that is sort of the center of focus for the entire polity. And the entire society is kind of built around the ritual system that... Uh, is, is dedicated to the patron deity of the city. It's, you know, we call them hieratic city-states. Hieratic means a priestly-based or religious-based society. <clears throat> and that really was the focus of the entire society to, to sort of, to draw people in, 
direct their attention to a central point, you know, looking up that pyramid, uh, which was where the house of the deity was, almost as if the whole point of the society was to sustain the existence of this creature, right? And, you know, it's also very interesting. You look at these societies and they speak of themselves, like everybody, including the rulers, as the slaves of these gods. Because that's one of the things that can happen is these are psychic entities that are autonomous and can actually influence and sometimes control human beings as well, like in the traditional tellings of, of these stories. And, you know, you think back maybe to these early, uh, you know, these, the, these, are, these are societies that, are, that, are, that existed prior to the invasions of the desert and steppe warriors who came in and, and kind of wiped all that out, right? They've been around for thousands of years. They grew uh, like organically out of the Neolithic. And so you have people kind of in an Eric Neumann sense whose egos are maybe not fully developed and formed and their ego boundaries are not as firmed up as they would later become, right? And so if you have these people who have a society that is built around the conjuring and sustenance of this, of this egregore being, and that is their sort of patron deity, that's maybe the way they think of it, it's completely built around that, but they're ego boundaries are still quite porous and, you know, their sense of individuality as opposed to the collectivity is, is, you know, still somewhat blurry, that this thing can rebound on them and essentially enslave them so that they're putting all of their energy into ensuring the continued existence of this thing. And so these things can turn around and control and possess people when they, when they come out is my point. And so, um, and we are still talking about mass shooters because what I think about, what I think is like, <clears throat> Something like this gets called into being. Like, I, I remember hearing a theory one time, and I don't know if this is true, but the idea is still, is still interesting, whether or not it's literally true, that the Zodiac killer was not like some guy that we never found, that it was a whole bunch of unconnected people who kind of picked up on this idea of the Zodiac killer and would go and do what we would kind of call copycat murders. Uh, another way of thinking about that maybe though, is that they, you know, these, these different people were possessed by the Zodiac demon. And, you know, that, that was this spirit that was moving through the world and going and, and uh, committing these acts through the bodies of these human beings. And, you know, when I, I you, you could think of Columbine almost as like, like an occult ritual that was conjuring this, this mass shooting demon into the world you know, mass shootings had happened before a few months before that Kip Kinkle up in Oregon, you know, there had been others, but this is the one that really changed everything. And they were very conscious of the fact that they were trying to change everything. And, you know, you can almost look at the, at that mass murder as an elaborate, like a cult ritual to conjure the sacrifice to a sleeping God. Ah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. So I wasn't so, trying to interrupt your, your no, that, that that's perfect. And I've been running on for a while. So uh, go ahead. Well, listen, that is um, sort of the entire trajectory of my my entire podcast here. And I'm going to try to incorporate spree shooters into my response to what you're saying, because it's a little bit the way you're talking about this is the way I talk and think about this. And it's kind of what I meant about coming full circle and not really understanding you back in the day and now <clears throat> like getting it. Um, but the spree shooters to me seem like a manifestation of the continued fracturing of the collective psyche. 
Whereas prior to that, you had serial killers and you don't really hear about them anymore, even though there is this sort of retro interest in them now. There's this sort of a kitsch online culture about serial killers and there's all these videos and everything. It's really a phenomenon of the past, yeah. uh, of the of the analog age. And uh, spree killers are a phenomena of the digital age. And I haven't quite specifically of the televisual age, which I guess is the, probably you, yeah. You mean the serial killers in the analog? Yeah, yeah of yeah. course. Right. Exactly. The analog age, I, you know, is postmodernity. But I like using the medium as a descriptor because sometimes a lot of people still think we're in postmodernity. And we are. We, we, have, we are in the, the inheritance of postmodernity, in my opinion. I think the digital brings us into a new, a new era. And I argue that elsewhere. But for our purposes, let's just take that for granted. And I haven't quite figured out um exactly what it is the what with the what the implications are of the spree versus the serial killer maybe we can suss that out but why the reason i said i laughed at malcolm gladwell because i i didn't think his critique was so ridiculous because he took the broken windows uh, philosophy or the broken windows perspective where if you clean up a neighborhood and make it look like there's no crime there crime actually goes down and he was basically saying uh uh, it once one person breaks a window, then the next person thinks it's okay to break a window. And then you're right back to square one. And um, this is how these things start. It's also how a riot starts. Someone who would never smash the, the front of a building in and go in and loot it. He sees people doing it at three stores, consecutive stores down the road. He goes to the fourth one and he breaks in. He never would have done that before. So in that sense, I think he's right. The problem is, is I don't think anyone really is addressing the social conditions that cause it. And I don't think you can reduce it just to um, psychiatric medication, but I do think it's a, a, it's a psychiatric condition that the entire culture is undergoing. So um, I have this, this project I'm working on, which I do have on my blog. There's a, a short piece on this, and it's in also in one of my podcast episodes where I talk about the mythic horizon. And I got this from Robert Anton Wilson and, and Carl Jung, who I'm fairly certain you've read, I know you've read Young, and um, so maybe you've read that in them as well, but they talk about how like the collective consciousness is focused down in the earth in an agrarian society, and that's where they see the mythical creatures coming out of. They see the fairies and the, and the gnomes coming out of the earth, they come out of the heather, and they come out of the forest, uh, and they come out of the unknown, and then the collective consciousness was, uh, the, the, the collective horizon, excuse me, was focused to the heavens during the space age. And that's where the mythical creatures came out of. The, uh, the aliens came down and that's what people started to see. And these were archetypical, uh, you know, monsters of the, of the specific era. And the archetypical monster now, and each era is, dedic uh, is, is, um, is defined by a certain affect of the culture. And the digital era, the horizon is the digital horizon. And we're looking kind of like into the grid of cyberspace. That's where our uh, collective psyche is, is focused now. That runs our economy. It runs our social relations, things like that. And we are seeing artificial intelligence come out uh, of, the, of, the, of the ether of digital space. And the affect of the culture, or what I've called the archetypical um, kind of mental illness or the archetypical psychiatric disorder of hypermodernity of the digital age is autism. And the, 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 um, and then there's like, you could say neur neurosis is the archetype of modernity and schizophrenia is the archetype of postmodernity. So now it's autism. And I think this is where, um, if I'm onto something where we can relate it to the, the mass shooting, 
because autism is defined by the inability, among other things, to pick up on social cues. And the inability, right, because the, the, the schizophrenia is defined by the inability to uh, follow the continuity of your psyche through time and to retain that continuity. And it starts to fracture, right? And it's the fractured psyche and it's like disconnected uh, aspects of your being that you individuate and put together to be a whole person, they fracture and you have like multiple personality, quote unquote. Uh, whereas autism is more like you're unable to situate your psyche or your ego within the context of the milieu and the social environment around you. And it's, 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 it's uh, defined or classified by certain external cues, like the inability to react uh, with the proper affect to being um, beckoned or triggered or in some way uh, uh, respond in conversation to, to your interlocutor or your parent um, by having a flat affect and you don't have like the facial features. And Pallia talks about this, like how digital media like makes this happen. It, it exacerbates this type of condition because she talks about like on the big screen, for example, when you're watching close-ups of people's faces and everybody's doing it collectively together, you're all interpreting the affect and the emotion of the actor on the screen in, in great detail. And you're having this collective experience. Whereas in the digital age, you're isolated by yourself on a tiny little screen where it's not a collective experience. It's uh, Schlotterdijk would say you're forming a bubble with the, you know, the, the avatar or the, the image, the simulacrum on the screen. And it's this tiny little screen and it doesn't, it's not evocative of the emotion or the affect of the, of the person you're interacting with. And this leads to, um, sort of this collective condition in which now here's the part where I, I have trouble. I don't exactly know why that leads to an eruption of violence. And the only recourse I have to that is back to my first episode where I talk about McLuhan and Baudrillard. Uh, but they say when, if you're trapped in hyper reality and you're unable to sort of form a connection in reality and in the world around you and all your connections are with hyper reality, the way to overcome the deadlock, right? That you're trapped in to break the hyper real fetters is a violent act and the violence causes uh, the real to erupt into the hyper real. And it, it, it's a way for uh, the real to sort of overtake the hyper real. So the example Baudrillard uses is uh, is uh, terrorists. Right. So they they want they want to provoke a response from us. Uh, so the way they do it is by killing uh, hostages on television. Um, there's an element of gloating there, right? Where they want to say like, you can't touch us, you can't do anything to us, but they're also trying to provoke a response to, so that they can martyr themselves uh, for the cause that they believe in uh, wholeheartedly. Now, it already feels like in a way I'm, I'm describing the spree shooters in a certain way, but the one thing that gives me trouble though, is that these guys are not ideologically motivated. You know what I mean? A lot of them. Some of them are. Well, no. And I would act. So this is maybe something we can talk about if you disagree with this. But I've been thinking about this a lot. And uh, it, when you study the, the, the more I look into it anyway, the ones who are ideological. Uh, you know, I I really can't. It, it very much seems to me that you're talking about the same people who the same people as the non-ideological ones who happen to come across, you know, uh, just some ideas on the internet that they were able to glom onto to justify and sort of not even justify, but to structure and, and a frame to put their actions in. But to me, they're Absolutely. The, I think they're the same thing. Well said. 
I think I do too, but I haven't totally fleshed it out yet because it does seem so purely nihilistic. Uh, but but I would think in a in a hyper modern you know epoch in which the the psyche is fractured and people are isolated, right? It's almost like well, of course you're not all working together uh, to to create uh, to to bring about terroristic violence to usher in communism, because there's no social movements like that anymore. You are trying to usher in the reality that you kind of discovered yourself online, that your own personal thing, and you got all these manifestos. You know, so many of them write these manifestos. It's really interesting for me to find out that uh, the Columbine guys were so self-aware of what they were doing. Um, it, it was like they were acting like religious jihadi terrorists it almost sounds like yeah now, totally um i want to talk to you about a couple things and i don't want to get off the subject of what we're talking about because it's really rich uh rich subject matter but wasn't there a third guy who helped them plan it that didn't actually do the shootings and he helped them get the guns well yeah no so as far as i know at least uh and i uh, you know, from Dave Cohen's book and and the other books that I've read, uh, there was a guy who helped them get the guns, uh, but who didn't uh, who didn't know that that's what they were planning. And okay. I, I don't believe he actually was aware. He, he did get like twenty years though for getting them those guns. Right, right. Um, you know, and the, and because the thing is, like, even today, people will say, uh, you know, uh, w- when I talk to people about Sue Klebold's book and how you have like just all, all of the. Uh, you know, people assume that there must have been just all of these red flags all over the place that anybody that wasn't a completely checked out parent just would have had to have noticed. And that's it's I tell people it's just not true. You know, these were these were kids who had families that loved them, that paid attention to them, that disciplined them. You know, the year before the two of them got uh, got caught after breaking into a van and stealing some audiovisual equipment. They both got put on like curfew for like six months. They they both had to go to counseling. I mean, these parents were engaged and the kids themselves say that in their videos, you know, they say like, our parents are not going to know what to make of this. And look, we'll just tell you guys right now, we're sorry of all of the backlash. that's going to come back on you for this. We just have the, the words they use is we just, we have no choice. We have to do what we had to do. And, um, you know, they actually take, some pains to apologize to their parents in those videos and to tell everybody else, like, don't go looking at our families for the answer here because we have good families. And, um, you know, the, the, the Klebold, Sue Klebold's book does a great job of kind of on a minute by minute basis in the, in the day, the day of, and then immediately after the Columbine massacre of conveying the shock and horror of a parent who thought they had a normal kid, you know, hearing, oh my God, there's a shooting at the school and thinking like, is my boy okay to having to come around to deal with the fact that your kid did this. And then coming across these videos and their, uh, you know, their, their journals and realizing that this was not something that it was not an impulse, you know? I mean, the, the, the two Columbine kids, the weekend before the shooting, they went to their prom with dates. They were both part of like a large group of friends. They, they both had jobs. They held down jobs and went to those jobs up to the, like their very last assigned day at the job right before the shooting. Um, you know, uh, Dylan Klebold, his first choice for university, because they were both seniors, was University of Arizona. And three weeks before, his parents had taken him down there. They toured the campus. He was talking. 
you know, uh, and, and that was and even in their journals, in the videos, they talk about how they're going through all these motions because they can't let anybody know what it is that they're planning. And if you have kids, I mean, you know, we, we say kids, you're talking about Eric Harris by the time of the shooting was 18 years old. Uh, you know, Dylan was 17 years old. I mean, we used to send 15 year olds off to war, you know, um, granted, like the way we raise kids today, the, you know, a 15 year old today is not the same as a 15 year old, maybe a hundred years ago or before that, but still, um, you know, these are, these are young men really by any, any normal. So we, we, you know, we call them kids and that's not necessarily the best way to think about it. Uh, except in so far as they are still in a dependent relationship, which, you know, with, with society and with their parents, which I think actually is really important uh, to understanding them, you know, like um, the, uh, and you talk about like, uh, like a framework for thinking about the act in psychological terms. Um, and what, what came to mind to me was the old German psychologist. Uh, she, she focused mostly on uh, like very early childhood development. Her name's Margaret Mahler. And she's absolutely fantastic for, uh, I think, understanding, um, for understanding compulsive violence. In, in humans, you know, she talks about how you go through stages as, uh, you know, a, young, a very young child goes through these developmental stages that are quite defined, and they're defined within uh, pretty strict timeframes, simply because the childhood is developing physically so rapidly. And once you cross a certain threshold where now you can walk, you know, you can ambulate around on your own, you're in a totally different situation than you were beforehand. And there's no going back on that. So these are like very strict stages. When you start learning how to, uh, you know, to speak a little bit so that you can begin to interact with the adult human beings around you in a more complicated way, you know, these are, these are very strict developmental stages. And she talks about how we get up to this critical period between about like 18 and 30 months, which we call the terrible twos, where the kid usually starts asserting their individuality in really aggressive ways. You know, they'll flush your keys down the toilet. They'll say no to everything. If you try to help them with something you would have helped them with before. No, they want to do it themselves. They want to do it themselves. And they'll get mad if you try to help them and push you away. They're very aggressively asserting their own individuality because this is a period now that they've been walking around for a little while, they're learning to talk a little bit, that they're really starting to develop a little uh, nascent ego right? In a sense of themselves as an individual. And if you think about what came before that, you know, you have a situation of complete and total dependency on the mother uh, and on just sort of the world around. Uh, but there is, and we, we see this in, in adult behavior all the time, uh, that there is a certain, you know, you're, you're a bit of a prisoner when you're a dependent, but there's something uh, kind of calming about it. You know, in many ways, psychologically, uh, being in a dependent relationship is easier than being independent. Uh, there's less, there's less pressure. There's, you know, just a million different psychological ways. And so when they reach that period, that toddlerhood where their ego is starting to develop, they're on this precipice where all of their sort of inner drive toward individuation, their physical development, everything else is pushing them to want to go out and uh, form up their ego and go act independently in the world and individuate. But there's a fear that goes along with that. And there is this desire to say, forget all that. I'm going to go back into the warm, 
you know, amniotic embrace of the mother where everything was safe and everything was taken care of and I didn't have to stand on my own out here. Um, and how that period is navigated, Margaret Mahler says becomes very important. You know, whether, like if that child does retreat back into a situation of like greater dependency, that's going to be something that will likely stick with their personality for the rest of their lives, as opposed to if they're able, you know, with encouragement from their parents to step out and continue to develop. Now, one of the things she talks about is how in this period, this is the way she, she explains uh, the phenomenon of temper tantrums at that age, where these kids just go absolutely ballistic, you know, where you watch like a two-year-old having a temper tantrum. It's insane, you know, the level of just rage and just pure expressive like outburst of, of like aggressive energy or, or however you want to call it. And what she says is, you know, when you have this ambivalence between the desire to retreat back into the mother's embrace and the desire to follow your own like inner impulse toward individuation, um, that that ambivalence, sometimes the tension becomes so high that the kid, uh, you know, almost reaches like a state of something that can be called panic, um, especially when, you know, that cannibal mother, cannibal ogress, cannibal witch kind of archetype that we have, you know, that's this is kind of where that comes from. If you, you know, ask somebody like Carl Jung, the idea of like the witch that wants to eat the kids or the cannibal ogress, it's this feeling of like, my, our mother wants to reabsorb us. She wants to bring us back into the fold and like keep us as a dependent. And if they feel themselves being pulled back in that direction, the way that you can assert like the simplest and most direct way that you can assert your own existence, your own individuality uh, is through just aggression, you know, hot, just, just an extreme act of violence, right? McLuhan says, like you mentioned, I think uh, every act of violence is a quest for identity. And it's a very complicated, you know, and, and maybe deep saying you could go a lot of directions with, but when I think about these kids who, uh, you know, are coming up on, 18 years old and all of the, all of the kids like there, there is, it's hard to, it's hard to draw up a really consistent psychological profile for a mass shooter in the way that it is more of a straightforward thing for serial killers, because there are, they, they come in many different shapes and sizes, but you, if you, if you eliminate many of the fringe cases, then you can sort of start to get a shape And one of them that they talk about. It, it just comes out in Elliot Rogers manifesto it comes out in the Columbine journals. It comes out uh, just over, over, over and, uh, and over again. There's this feeling that like, you know, nobody notices me. You know, when we do derive, you know, identity is something that is socially negotiated. It's not just sort of this thing that grows up in your mind and, and you, you, know, you have sort of plugged in there. Identity is always something that's continually socially negotiated. And, uh, you know, if you, if you think of, I, I really liked how you said, Neurosis was the sort of the the archetypal uh, um, you know neuro, uh, psychological problem of modernity and then schizophrenia for I actually wrote that down autism for hypermedia I think that's very insightful um, that uh, you know these kids who feel like they are ignored who don't have strong relationships with the world around them who very much fit virtually always the uh, the the um, psychological profile of like a malevolent narcissist. You know, that is one thing that you can almost always take to the bank on these is there's an extraordinary level of narcissism involved. And that really, in a lot of ways, like Christopher Lash writes about, is almost the modern personality structure. Like virtually everybody is uh, in, in a modern society today, Western societies. 
is somewhere along the spectrum of narcissism. And, you know, the narcissist, you, you, you know, if you go to like psychiatrists who deal with modern people, they'll often talk about, and Lash writes about this in his book, how, you know, they'll talk about how all of the stuff that I learned in college, which was like Freud and Adler and, you know, all these it's, it helped me understand certain things about the structure of the mind, whatever, but it's not telling me anything about these patients that I'm seeing today, you know, because what, what was Freud looking at? Freud was looking at like a, a woman who comes in, who breaks down into hysteria and, or just suffers some kind of like psychological break due to the pressure of some repressed emotion or whatever. And that's not really what anybody sees today. It's like when you read Dostoevsky or something and these people like, are breaking down weeping or a man like encounters something and he faints or you almost read those today and you're like is he just embellishing or like is this what people were like and it is what they were like extreme um, histrionics is defined yeah as, uh, yeah Dostoevsky's whereas today writing. you know the malady to the psychological malady today is that people kind of float through life in a haze in a dull foggy haze they uh they're they're not really sure that they even really exist. In fact, you know, I think the movie Joker is an outstanding portrayal of the, the, the mindset of a, of a mass shooter. And in that movie, one of the things he says, he says to his psychologist or, or whatever she's social worker, after he kills his first three people, and it's kind of in the press, and he's, you know, there's a clown showing on the front page and everything. He says, my whole life, I wasn't even sure that I even really existed. But I do. And people are beginning to notice. And so if you think about a person who, you know, is who, who does have that uh, feeling that they don't really exist, which is another way of saying that you don't have strong ego boundaries because you're not getting feedback from the rest of the world that would sort of, you know, set those boundaries and kind of draw up the, the basic silhouette of your personality. Um, that when you walk into a shopping mall and just open fire, you are for better or worse, you are the center of attention and nobody around that area can deny that you exist. It's the most real thing in the world. And, uh, you know, people are having the most visceral reaction imaginable to your presence, you know? And so, you know, that's in, 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 a, in a different way, that's, that's, that's sort of like, you know, saying an eruption of the real into the hyper real, um, it's obviously a little bit different the way they mean those terms, but it is that, you know, it's an eruption of reality and a person who has been floating through life in a foggy haze and all of a sudden everything condenses into something that's crystal clear. Yeah, it, it's no longer, they're no longer experiencing the world with a flat affect at that moment, at that moment. And I'm glad you articulated all that because I, it makes me want to clarify something I said about the archetypical uh, psychi psychiatric disorder which is to say that I understand that um, the individuals in question here do not necessarily demonstrate the, the symptoms or the signs of someone with these disorders. And in no way did I mean that, nor, nor do I think you thought I did. But um, just to clarify what I'm saying here is that the culture itself suffers from that condition. And I really like where you said about the temper tantrum thing, because one of the things that uh, defines uh, truly autistic people and I mean people with no level of, of functioning whatsoever, they need to be cared for for their entire lives, is violent temper tantrum outbursts, outbursts for whatever reason they may be having those. Um, you know, people call, um, 
I don't really want to get into this, but people call autism into question as a psychiatric disorder. There's a theory that it's actually a physical disorder. Um, and I'm not talking about the chemical imbalance bullshit that people say about bipolar and all that. You're probably familiar with this, that the gut bacteria uh, misregulates your emotions and your perceptions in autism. But um, that's for another episode. Uh, but it is prescient for today's uh uh, uh, mandatory vaccinated world, but we're not going to talk about that today. But let's just take for, for the sake of my argument that it is a psychiatric disorder and it is characterized basically by your inability to situate yourself uh, with relation to the world around you. It's like, it's like these violent outbursts are society having those autistic temper tantrums because uh, you can't reduce them to the, the uh, sociological or societal factors that you can reduce inner city violence to. You can't reduce them to the um, abusive, uh, manipulative factors you can, you, can, you can reduce spousal abuse to, or even um, just the attempt, the brute domination of one person over another. This isn't any of that. It's much more the things you're talking about. Um, so that's what I meant when I was saying it was an archetypical uh, psychiatric disorder. And now I'm glad you mentioned Nietzsche, you mentioned Dostoevsky, and you, you mentioned the Joker, because the movie I keep going back to, and I thought I put a lot of thought about into this. And you made me think of this when you were talking about how meticulously those guys planned the Columbine shooting. I think about Travis Bickle. And I think about the way Travis Bickle, uh, there's those scenes where Paul Schrader, um, I don't know how much he intended this and how much this was Scorsese, but they had those long, detailed shots of him making the slide that the gun was going to go on in his arm and posing in front of the mirror. And, and it was an aesthetic thing for him, but it was also a mechanical thing for him because he was a soldier and he had been trained that way. And this was his uh, training coming out. Um, and it reflects the meticulous training that I was unaware of that that I mean, I knew they had it, but I didn't know it was how self-aware they were. You know what I mean? Of how self-conscious they were of exactly what they were doing. Oh, yeah. They chose their clothing very specifically. So no, it was an aesthetic act as much totally. as it was. Right. And was wearing a black shirt that said wrath across. It. Right. I mean, very, very conscious of it for sure. And that's in Taxi Driver when he's posing in front of the mirror and he's working on his physique <clears> and he's, you know, the famous you talking to me scene. Um, and I certainly think that. There's some sort of uh, see it, my favorite young book is Ion, and he he really put something in focus to me where he talks about how the Cathars and the Albigensians were the stirrings of a new archetype and a new spirit that was trying to emerge in the in the uh, civilization of Europe and the church snuffed it out, but it reemerged. Uh, as a different beast with the Protestant Reformation. But he says that that's the same spirit and that's the same mindset trying to be born into being. And this goes back to your egregore talk. Um, and I look at the movies of the 70s and I, I've, I'm convinced, I actually have an episode recorded on my computer that's going to come out. So I'm shilling that, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode. Uh, but I think Taxi Driver, that movie and some other movies from the 70s are like the stirrings of this something deep in the American uh, collective unconscious that is like trying to be born. And it's the first place it manifests is in movies. And then it gets birthed into being. Um, you're going to have to listen to the Texas Chainsaw to, to see what I'm saying about that. But for Taxi Driver is, I think, the, the mass shooter archetype. Uh, something in the American psyche 
was taking root at that time. And it, it's got to be related to the Vietnam War in some way. And it's got to be related to the mass aestheticization of violence on television being beamed into everyone's uh, home, right? And there's something interesting with Taxi Driver that sets it apart from something like uh, that movie, The Basketball Diaries with Leonardo DiCaprio, which depicts a mass shooting in a black trench coat. And that came out in the early 90s. I think Mark Wahlberg was also in that film. Yeah, it's a was really that, good and, movie. Uh, it was that movie, uh, Heathers. You seen that? Yes. Those movies are awesome. Everyone mm-hmm. not familiar, go watch them. Um, <clears throat> Natural Born Killers in a way as well. Yeah, um, I, I'm going to talk about that movie a little bit when, like, a little bit later, because I rewatched because... that recently. You know, I, I hadn't seen it in a long time, and I went back and rewatched it. And uh, boy, that's a, it's a it's a that is a profound movie in many ways. Um, not a, I, I have a lot of ambivalent feelings about it, though. Um, I, and I was basically uh, evoking this egregore being born that those guys were bringing uh, into the world and birthing into the world. I do think you can trace it back at least to Taxi Driver in the Vietnam War. Now, and oh, and I'm so I'm talking about the aestheticization, right? Freud versus Nietzsche. I think the reality is somewhere in between the two, because Freud says you have this uh, certain amount of economy within your uh, this collective psyche and the economy has to be spent and sublimated in different ways. And it's through getting food, getting shelter, sex, procreating, raising children, making art and committing violence. And all of those things have to happen. And if you don't sublimate the violence into something else like art, it's, it's going to come out. Whereas Nietzsche's argument uh, with the subterranean, which I'm going to have a whole episode coming out on the subterranean as well, so stay tuned for that, is he talks about there's certain types of people. You see, we understand the mass shooter, in my opinion, in the Freudian sense, which is that uh, there's a developmental problem that goes wrong somewhere and that it causes them to sublimate, it causes them to pathologically sublimate uh, or fail to sublimate in, in many cases, uh, all these different things. And it, it comes out as violence. It comes out. Well, as and I think that that's the key. It's a failure of sublimation, failure of sublimation. Whereas the, the concept of the, the subterranean that Nietzsche has is there's no sublimation going on whatsoever. There's just different types of people and there's archetypes of people. Uh, and there's the, the archetype say of, this is my word, not his, the warrior, um, is the type of person who's not going to sublimate it. He's going to lash out and commit the violence because that's, who he is at his core of his being or his essence. And the whole thing about the genealogy of morals is that in the past, the blonde beasts were these people and they began civilization and they controlled civilization and morality was based. And that this was the master morality was based on these guys and their violent natures. But then there was a slave revolt and the slave morality set off a new sort of morality. And these guys there was no place for them anymore. And they became the subterraneans. And these are the people that Raskolnikov meets in, in Siberia as well. The guys who failed to sublimate their violence, um, who in the past would have been the warlords, but now are the criminals. Um, and I kind of wonder where you stand on that. Uh, later on in the episode, I'm, we're going to explicitly, I want to talk about Dostoevsky and, and Nietzsche. You had a great episode on that. But uh, if you could kind of take this, Tell me what you think. Is this and you I guess you sort of already addressed this, but do you think this is a, a, a abnormal psychological development that results in this? Or do you think that this is this type of person sort of uh, manifesting themselves, coming upon the scene and making a name for themselves? Uh, there were two things that came into my mind as you were saying that. Um, 
because it's, it's a it's an it's a very interesting question actually you know the first thing that came into my mind is that uh you know it wasn't these uh these these blonde beast societies it wasn't the dorians and so forth who uh were the, who, who built the societies that were engaged in these holocausts of human sacrifice and child sacrifice these these groups came in and wiped those people out you know it was uh it was very much um you know i i actually believe and i was probably influenced in my thought on this by a book that will remain nameless it was written in germany in the 30s um that uh you know the the step in desert warriors who came and who came upon these these ancient ancient by this point societies in uh, Greece and Italy in North Africa and the Near East, uh, whether you're talking about the various branches of Phoenician civilization, uh, whether you're talking about all of the Levantine groups that uh, are, are spoken about in the Hebrew Bible, the Etruscans uh, up in Italy, all of these groups, by the time these warriors came upon them, had degenerated into societies that were something like uh, what the Spanish found when they got to Mexico. And if you, if you take it back to that idea of the egregore and imagine that, you know, there is this being that has sort of enslaved these populations to devote themselves towards sustaining its existence, uh, it, it, it sheds a different light on all of these, these ancient wars where, uh, that, that, that always culminate in knocking over the idols of the enemy and burning their temples and so forth, where uh, you know it's not just that we're trying to destroy their identity as a national people or something like that. It's that you're actually this is a religious war where you're destroying the infrastructure that sustains this this evil being that exists, right? And I think that the Romans and the Greeks or their predecessors, when they came upon the Etruscans and Phoenicians and you know, the, the, the Baal and Moloch worshipers and so forth, they were very conscious of being involved in a religious war to wipe these people out. And, uh, and, and they, you know, the, 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 the difficulty, of course, uh, it, as always, is that you can never wipe it out completely and you always risk lapsing, or I, I would say being assimilated into uh, the thing that was there before, before, you know, the, the thing that you conquered. And so that's like the constant theme in the Hebrew Bible, obviously, uh, you know, it's, it's a constant theme throughout like Roman and Greek history is the, the, the re-eruption of these you know, myths that were sustained in the countryside and these old sacrificial rituals. And there, and it, and that, that relapse is sort of synonymous with degeneration and decadence in these societies. And, um, so I think that's where I, I'd be interested in like maybe doing some reading or, or I wish I could ask Nietzsche like what he thought about that. The fact that, you know, it was not these warrior societies that were engaged in all this ritual sacrifice speaking with. The second thing is about sublimation. You know, that is one of the, the more valuable uh, concepts that, that Freud fleshed out for us, I think, because you know, I, did a, I did an episode a while back on uh, human sacrifice and cannibalism. I did a lot of research for that. And one of the interesting things that you find is that throughout the world, civilizations throughout the world, at different times, different places, you find 
if you don't find, if you, you can go back far enough and you often will find human sacrifice and or ritual cannibalism among almost everybody, if we have the ability to trace it back far enough. Um, if we don't, what you'll often find is some sublimated version of it, right? Where today we still eat the body and blood of Christ every Sunday, right? Which is really crazy if you just think about the fact that, you know, we have, I mean, if you just separate yourself, like if you're just a space alien, you come down and realize that the most powerful country in the world, the United States, is still a Christian enough country that, um, you know, like a professed atheist could not be elected president. You still have to say you're a Christian in order to be elected president, whether you mean it or not. You have to at least pay lip service to that. And so the head of state of the most powerful empire in world history, the most modern, technologically advanced, scientifically advanced empire in world history has to profess his belief in, uh, you know, like, like, like a, a system of beliefs that uh, require him to pretend to engage in an act of ritual cannibalism on a regular basis. It's, if you just look at that from the outside, it's a really crazy thing. Um, you know, when you, when you look back through, you know, there's a really good example. If you think of like uh, the, uh, the Native Americans of the Northwest Pacific Coast, like the Kwakutl and stuff, they're just one of the most fascinating people that you're ever going to study because uh, they are they, they were not agriculturalists, they were hunter gatherers, but they happened to live in a place that was so bountiful that their population was able to grow and their social complexity was able to elaborate to a degree that hunter gatherers almost never, ever, ever achieve. And so you start to see these sort of developments in a society that is still technically a hunter gatherer society. And, um, you know, they have very famously the, uh, the, the, um, the, the uh, it's not a, really a ritual, but the social custom of the potlatch, right? Which is like a ritual, uh, uh, rather it's like, it's like a competitive uh, giving away of things or destroying of one's property in order to assert sort of dominance over your opponents, right? So um, it might, you know, sometimes it's as simple as, uh, you know, I'm going to give a feast and that is sort of like asserting my status over a, another rival elite or something, but they would actually go through things where they would uh, literally just destroy their own wealth. They would go get things, blankets and various other things that were very valuable in their society. And if there was somebody that didn't like them, they would go out in front of their house and they would drop and they would just burn it all or destroy it all. And that was, that was very much considered to be in that society, an act of aggression. And uh, when, um, when, when anthropologists or early ethnologists went and interacted with those people and asked them about these things, they got a very interesting and a very direct answer. They said that we do these things now so that we don't have to sacrifice people. And, you know, that, that's about as direct as you can get of an idea of like sublimation, right? You think of something like, uh, you know, a, um, like the sin eaters, in uh, early modern England, right? These are people whose job in the village it would be is somebody dies, they go do, you know, the basic form of the ritual would be that the family uh, would, would bring the body or, or the sin eater would go to where the body was and the family would stand on one side of it and he would stand on the other side and they would pass a piece of bread or something else over the body and then he would eat it and that would be, uh, you know, it would essentially absorb the sins of the dead person into this, into this sin eater person uh, before the thing went up to be judged. And the sin eater was simultaneously somebody that he was like, he was a figure of loathing, but he was also like a revered figure. 
like a lot of shamans were kind of like similar thing like that. Very interesting is that like that ambivalence is kind of there. It's like almost a sacred figure, but also somebody that nobody wanted to be around and considered sort of filthy. Um, and that's, you know, it's another example of, uh, of a sublimated behavior as a sublimated cannibalistic behavior. And, and so I like the idea of a lot of these acts as a failure of sublimation, right? So if you go back far enough, you go to find some primitive society that um, engages in headhunting, human sacrifice, and or cannibalism, ritual cannibalism. You know, that, that's, that, that those people are doing literally what people who are more developed have learned to do symbolically, but, they're, but they are serving the same psychic needs. You know, and that's I think that's important to understand. And like you could almost say that like the progressive sublimation of these drives and these impulses is almost synonymous with civilizational development and psychological development. You Absolutely. Know, you're, and and so uh, when you have these things happen where you have a relapse, I mean, you know, there's like there's these famous stories like the guy, the Arab guy who uh, discovered the um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, there's a you know famous story that sometime before that, he and uh, somebody had killed his father, and he had four brothers, and so his brothers, in accordance with you know the Arab custom of retribution, went and found the guy who killed their father, and they killed him, and they sat around and ate his heart. This is true. And, this is yeah, really happening. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and um, that I never heard. And there's another story uh, in um, Dexter Filkin's book, yeah, I believe. He's great. Uh, he's fucking yeah. great. Oh, The Forever War. Yeah. yeah. Where he talks about, I'm pretty sure it's in that book. He talks about somebody, uh, an Arab woman who one of her sons was killed by a jihadist and out in like Eastern Iraq, out in the desert, you know, way away from all the cities or anything like that. And so her other sons went and killed that guy. And when they did, they brought, I was, they either brought her back a morsel of his flesh or a vial of his blood so that she could drink it or eat it. And, you know, because if you think about like cannibalism is like the ultimate form of aggression, right? I'm not just killing you. I am incorporating your substance into my own body, completely dissolving and disintegrating every, you know, everything about you. It's just, and so, uh, you know, you can, I look at something like that as, um, you know, I, I like, like, like to get off a little bit. I don't want to get too off track here, but maybe um, to, to finish my point is, you know, I, I actually think about something like. Uh, the Christian mass as sort, sort of taking this idea and merging it with like the, the Girardian sense of, uh, of the Christian mass where, you know, God is sort of saying to the people, like this is sort of the narrative that, that I think is at play. Um, he's saying, look, uh, if you, all, all of this sort of, uh, you know, uh, intra-social violence that tends to escalate until somebody gets killed. And if you really like let it just roll completely out of control, the way it's going to end is you killing and eating the other person, like the ultimate uh, form of aggression that could be possible. That's how this whole thing's going to happen. And so this other person has wronged you, you know, and maybe in according to all the traditional ways, you know, the old pagan ways and so forth, this would justify you, in fact, require you uh, as, as a matter of honor to go and seek retribution here. Well, what I'm telling you is that person might've, might seemed as if they've wronged you, uh, but I created all this, like this thing is really all my fault and all of the, uh, all of the pain and suffering and all of the things that go wrong in your life at some level are really 
my problem and and my my doing. And so here, if if you get to that point, and it's why you have to like before you go take uh, communion at a you know you're supposed to sort of they you know purify your your spirit right cleanse yourself of all the uh, negative and aggressive thoughts you have toward other people and everything, and you know we kind of take that in a very just a, a sort of very basic and, and non-elaborate way of saying, well, you just have to, in order to approach this ritual, you have to be sort of pure or whatever. But I think what it's, you know, the real point of it, if you go back far enough, is essentially saying that, you know, you're doing, you're, you're killing and eating me so that you can let go of whatever your problem is with this other person. And that's a powerful sublimation, you know, and it's one that even today we haven't really been able to fully let go of, which is remarkable if you think about it, you know. I totally agree. And the Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode that I'm teasing is about exactly that, about how it's uh, the, the transition. And you, and you already kind of beckoned to this and hearkened to this, the, the transition from one psychological stage to another. It's a psychological development, uh, the threshold, and the cannibalism sort of represents what stagnation, neuroses, um, I get way more into it in that episode, so I'll leave it at that. I want to make two quick responses to what you said, um, especially the last stuff. You know what? Real quick, one thing I wanted to mention. This is just a very small point, but it had to do with something that you said. Uh, is I think that maybe one of the reasons we do tend to think of the mass shooters in terms of you know developmental psychology or something like that is because that model seems to fit so well for serial killers. And okay. We, you know, if you think about like uh, just you think about the, the obvious one maybe is Ed Gein, right? The crazy ass farmer cannibal guy in, uh, in Wisconsin back in the fifties. I'll never forget when I first came across his story because I had already read the golden bow yeah. by uh, Frazier. And he has that famous scene in there where he's described, you know, he, well, he, he's pulling this from Sahagun or one of the other Spanish uh, priests. Um, so it's not his original material, but where he, he, this is where I read it. And he talks about this ritual where there's the maize goddess, which was like the primary fertility goddess among the Aztecs. Like this is the mother goddess really like uh, uh, for, for their society. Maize was their primary food stuff. And uh, once a year, they would pick some young virginal girl and they would bring her around the village or, or around the city. And everybody would come out and they would throw flowers at her feet and give her beautiful gifts. And she was the queen of the world, like for this week. And then at the end of the week, the culmination of this ritual period, they would all gather up in like the main square and they would have this giant pile of like vegetables and other foodstuffs. And they would bring her up to the top of it. And uh, the priest would cut her throat. And then they would flay her and the priest would shimmy into her skin. And they would always do this on a full moon, the ritual. And they would, he would dance as the mother goddess in the full moon. Well, you go to Ed Gein. Ed Gein was a dude with a, you know, a very complicated relationship with his mother. The Silence of the Lambs guy is kind of based on him. And he would go and kill women and or dig up corpses of recently dead women and specifically ones that he thought resembled his mother in some way, you know, maybe she just had the same color hair or something like that. And he would uh, sometimes on the night of a full moon, he would shimmy into this skin suit of them that, that he made out of these people and become his mother and dance under the full moon. Well, and you know, this was just a completely illiterate, uneducated guy from rural Wisconsin in the fifties. He had no idea what was going on with the Aztecs. There's 0% chance that that ever reached him. And so, you know, when I, I remember when I heard that and I went back and I read Frazier and I was like, holy shit. Like, so, so the model does, I think fit very well for serial killers. 
And I think you're really onto something that it's not a particularly useful model for uh, for the mass shooters, for the spree killers. I'm going to leave it to the audience to decide what what rough beast is being brought into being by the image of the uh, man wearing the skin suit of a dead woman. But uh, that's for another episode. But that's ex- that's what my episode was about. I, I, I almost wish I asked you on to that one because that's what we talk about. Exactly that. Now, I'm glad you brought up the Golden Bow because the Golden Bow and Freud's totem and taboo are where I, I got the perspective of the as civilization develops, these rituals are sublimated to, from being real acts into symbolic acts. And I, I think there's got to be something going on with the fact that a lot of these rituals, which are either violence or symbolically violent are gone from our society now. And I think it was Robert Bly where I got this from, but it could have been Freud. I think it was Robert Bly in the book, Iron John though, where he says, if a male is not initiated at a certain, you know, transfigurative time in his life through violence into the next stage, he is going to seek that violence out. And it's either going to be through self-harm or through harming people around him. And I wonder if there's, you know, something there that that maybe we or somebody else can can delve into at another time, the lack of ritual. And Joseph Campbell says this all the time. We need to bring ritual back into our society. And the lack of the initiation rituals in these men's lives that that leads them to this violence. And the last thing I'll say, um, I don't know how much more time you have. I'd really like to take a quick break. I'll fill my coffee up and we'll come back and we'll continue this. OK, so the last thing I want to say to this is with the sublimation versus the archetypical person. I didn't mean to make it sound so stark that that Nietzsche doesn't think there's sublimation exists. He clearly does. and talks about it in certain places. But Freud is much more explicit about it. Um, there has to be something there, though, I, I think. And um, Robert Sapolsky does a really good job in introduction of his book, Behave, where he talks about how some of the killings, I think they were being carried out by the Camera Rouge. Uh, mass killings were done to uh, to a symphonic soundtrack they would turn a symphony on and while they would execute you know 300 people and they were talking about how one guy was interviewed and he said it's because it's beautiful and robert sapowski says that this is like a distinctly human trait to to consider you know murder uh, artistic and i think it has something to do with either the failure to sublimate but also perhaps a, as i said before pathological sublimation of this drive to kill uh, into the drive to create art, but it gets mixed up somehow and it becomes these artistic killings. And there's one serial killer, I forget who, I think it was Ted Bundy, but it might've been Jeffrey Dahmer. I get those two confused, uh, where he saw his work as an art form. Uh, He's explicitly referred to it as an art form. The one who had people's remains in there fridge was that jeffrey dahmer yeah yeah Uh, yeah. so uh he specifically referred to this as an art form and look at uh look at uh buffalo bill uh he's a highly aesthetic character um this is all his sick pathologically sublimated version of you know uh fashion well look you know jeffrey dahmer incidentally there's a very famous picture of one of his victims that he beheaded yeah. And then placed in this like backward arched position with the knees bent where the body is yes. basically like bent completely double backwards. And uh, that 
picture was uh, the model that was used for a giant golden statue in the house of uh, Tony Podesta, John Podesta's brother. Oh, man. So, you know, so the, you every episode I have, I have to throw some subject matter out. And that was the subject matter, the conspiracy theories about how Jeffrey uh, Epstein kind of just blew the lid off of all 20 years of subcultural fringe conspiracy theories, brought it into the mainstream and that type of shit. John Podesta, mm-hmm. uh, it, there's no denying now that it's all real, but maybe maybe you'll come back and we'll talk conspiracy theories. But that was what I was referring to, the Jeffrey Epstein episode that you have, three episodes, uh, must listen for everyone. So, the third one's still coming. I'll probably finish oh, it next. Oh, I so. thought it was already out. Good. Um, so look, when we come back, we're going to talk Spengler, Nietzsche, and Cormac McCarthy, and it's all going to be uh, very much tied up when, with exactly what we're talking about here. Um I just want to leave with one thought before we go to a quick break is that um, you were talking about those Indians. I, for, I forgot the name of the tribe now in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, they are depicted in such a brilliant way and such a, a elaborate and beautiful way in the movie Dead Man, which is one of my all time favorite movies, the Jim Jarmusch film. Have you seen that? Long time ago. I need it's to rewatch that. Movie, absolutely yeah. worth rewatching. And um, these, because they had such an abundance of salmon, uh, and they, they came up with all these elaborate rituals and they were able to waste their their cultural production that way. They also made these extremely elaborate carved structures that like interlocking and work together and they moved. And if you were going to go into like the religious temple, the door would open you know, by itself or at least it would look like it was opening by itself because they had all this extra time. This goes back to Freud's economy, uh, this extra time for their psychic economy to focus on art. Um, and Deadman, I'm gonna we're gonna get back to Deadman too because we're gonna talk about Cormac McCarthy and Blood Meridian. But that's what you made me think of when you said that. So listen, this has been great, and uh, I'll fill up my coffee and we'll be right back. We are back, and as always, the interlude and the outro music is by my good friend Zante at Edenic Jesus on Twitter. Uh, there's links to his bio, excuse me, links to his account all over my Twitter page and on my Substack. I recommend you follow him. And we're back with Daryl Cooper. Now, in the first half, we spoke a lot about uh, violence and the violent eruption uh, of of a certain maybe type of person or perhaps a certain uh, maldeveloped psyche. Um, and, you know, we fleshed out a little bit about, uh, is it the failure of them to sublimate their violence or are they archetypically a a violent person, uh, say a warrior type archetype. Now we're going to leave the debate for now to talk about Spengler, 
Nietzsche and McCarthy. But I reiterated all that because these guys are very much focused on these questions and their characters, McCarthy's characters and the types of people that Spengler and Nietzsche discuss uh, are these types of guys um, who manifest in certain different ways in different times throughout civilizational development. So, Daryl, I'd like to talk first about Spengler, because as we said, he's uh, I read him because of you and he kind of changed both of our lives, a big paradigm shift after reading Decline of the West. And you said in your episode with Yarvin, actually, that you you believed in I, I'm going to paraphrase you here, something like uh, the Spenglerian Caesarism and the coming of the Caesar. And Spengler talks about this in uh, volume two in his chapter on second religiousness. And I really want to talk about this a bit. And I want to use that as a segue into Nietzsche, because I think in many ways, while Spengler isn't reducible to Nietzsche, I think he's elaborating a lot on some of the insights he takes from Nietzsche. But let's first talk about uh, Spenglerian Caesarism. Maybe you can characterize it for us first, and then we can discuss, is it something we can realistically expect to come about uh, as the American civilization uh, drones on, uh, grinds on into history? Yeah, well, so Spengler might not like me putting it this way, but he uh, he he sort of sees the emergence of the Caesar figure in terms of a, a historical dialectic, right? And so the easiest way to discuss uh, the Caesar is through the Roman example itself, right? And he says, like, so Caesar is not just a dictator. He's not just a king. He's not just an emperor. He's a very specific, uh, very specific thing that emerges at a very specific point in a civilization's development. And so if you look at Rome, you had this society that was highly structured in the early Republican days, right? And by highly structured, I mean that every, uh, every Roman was a citizen farmer and a warrior who had a structured place in the overall society and whose identity was deeply rooted in his local community. And uh, the, the, the society, Roman society itself, was this sort of emergent order out of this, this, this uh, deeply elaborated uh, social order that existed, that had grown out of you know, the, old, the old warrior society that had come into Italy. And so as time goes on, you know, when they conquer Carthage, the rest of the Mediterranean become the dominant empire and slaves start flowing back into the imperial core from all over the Mediterranean, you start to get this basic economic process that, you know, that, that we would be very familiar with today with, uh, you know, not slaves, but with the industrial revolution, which is, uh, you know, just as in the late 18, early 1900s, whether you talk about in the violent manner that happened in Soviet Russia or the somewhat less violent manner that happened, you know, when sheriffs were evicting small farmers uh, all over the United States, um, it drove this process of consolidation where economies of scale ate up the smaller economies. And the uh, result of that, the social result of that was that all of these formerly independent citizen farmers were driven into cities to go look for work or to go look for, in the Roman case, just handouts, bread and circuses and so forth. And those people, when they do that, uh, as, that, as, that as that process accelerates, the society itself becomes unstructured, but the people themselves in many ways become unstructured, like the individuals and the communities that they make up, and then eventually the society they make up. And you don't have a society 
so much anymore as you just have, you know, the, the, the word they use in Rome is the mob. And so, uh, you know, the Roman mob is not really the same thing as like a public or a society in the sense that we think of it. It's a, you know, it's, it's very much like a formless mass of people with, you know, maybe very weak uh, collective identity, you know, if it, because it's a breakdown, you know, if you look at like a, a good example, a really stark example is if you look at um, after the great migration of African-Americans in the United States, you know, you, you go back to like 1914 and uh, 96% of African-Americans are all still down in the South. They're almost all uh, living an agricultural lifestyle. They just hadn't migrated out of the South yet. You know, it's a, that's a, that's a big jump, you know, to, to as, as bad as like Jim Crow might've been for them. It was a situation that they were familiar with and they had communities down there that they had been rooted in since they uh, arrived, you know, arrived there. And uh, during the great migration, they moved up to the Northern and Western cities. These people who, you know, granted, like they had been, you know, there was segregation and so on and so forth, but they had their internal cohesion and coherence of their communities. And so you go back to like the forties and fifties, and the, uh, the rate of fatherlessness or divorce in the African-American community was it, you know, the same or lower than the overall uh, white rates of those things. Well, all those people then, the vast majority, now the vast, vast majority of African-Americans today all live in urban environments. And so these people who had lived in an agricultural community in Alabama now find themselves in some tenement house in Chicago and there is no community. There is no sort of extended family structure or social network or social capital. All of those things go away. And what you're left with is just a bunch of individuals who uh, don't have any intermediate centers of authority or power or legitimacy through which they can really express themselves politically or even assert their, their identity. And so they interface in a very, just a direct way with the state and the state's institutions. If you look at like communist societies, they're extremely cognizant of creating, bringing about this situation on purpose, right? So you go to uh, like the Soviet Union and the idea was that there, there are to be no, uh, associations, no sort of collective endeavors that are not mediated by the state, that all of any, anything that, you know, basically takes more than two people to accomplish and uh, over, over a period of time, that should be accomplished through some state institution. So you have just a bunch of broken down, isolated, atomized individuals, and then you have the state and its institutions, and that's it. And that is obviously like the, that, that is the, 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 uh, the, the core condition of a totalitarian society. You know, it's why the kulaks had to be destroyed, for example. It wasn't simply because they hated peasants and you know, they didn't like the fact that their success made, it, made people think that maybe a market system could work or anything like that. The, the communists and Stalin's people were very explicit in their own internal you know, non-public discussions about if we let this go on, these people you know, who still have these uh, local communities and centers of sort of authority uh, that, that that's going to become something that can challenge the power of the state. And so they're very conscious of trying to break that down. And that included families. They got down to the level of trying to break down families, you know. Uh, and so when a society reaches that point and you devolve into, you almost inevitably devolve into something like uh, what we, you know, basically an oligarchical situation where there is no, you know, like where, where, where social and political action are not taken based on 
any sense. It's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's not a bottom up eruption of the will of the people, and it's not based on any kind of collective uh, identity of the decision makers common with the people themselves, right? And so uh, the people themselves have no, you know, if you have broken down families, if you have no strong community associations, if your, you know, church infrastructure has fallen apart, if all of these other ways that you might have actually asserted political power or identity have fallen apart, you are left, in, in our case, we might say after now that like labor unions have been basically fallen apart, uh, um, how is it that you, you know, how do you assert yourself? How do you actually express political power? And really the only way to do that, to express, all you really have is your numbers against the, uh, you know, the organized minority who, uh, who controls your society. And so what you do with your numbers is you empower an individual to represent you against the organized minority. And obviously like Caesarism, you know, very quickly becomes a different type of organized minority, but that's what it is. It's a, so there's a populist element to it. You know, Caesar was a popular and he was very much, he very much at least styled himself a man of the people. And, you know, the way he did that is he realized he was not trying to appeal to like traditional Romans, you know, to people who, uh, these were degenerate people that he was trying to, and, and, and not necessarily by any fault of their own, the same way that like virtually every American today, you know, urban American, at least is in some sense, like a degenerate. Or we could say destitute in what maybe is, I don't know. Spiritually that. destitute, you know, uh, Ebert's phrase is good, like semiotically vacant. Um, you know, just, and so what are you appealing to? You're appealing to their appetites. You're appealing to their desire for entertainment. You're appealing to their prejudices. You're appealing to all of all of these things in order to uh, form and shore up your authority, to to be put to a use that is then highly personal, right? Like that's one of the things about Caesarism is no, you know, people aren't necessarily uh, loyal to the monarchy; they're loyal to that guy right there, you know. And um, the and, and so you know that that's the basic idea behind Caesarism. And so you ask, is that a thing that? Uh, necessarily must come about. Uh, maybe not, you know, there may, I would say that, uh, you know, the thing that I, w I wonder about now is, you know, we're in this very interesting situation with the rise of digital technology, right? And I know this goes back a little bit to something we were talking about before the break, and we want to talk about something else now, but there is- No, this is exactly where I wanted this to go. Okay, Perfect. is that digital technology has had the effect of delegitimizing all of the elite power structures and institutions that have existed and that exist now, at the same time that they are giving those institutions and elite power structures infinitely more power to, uh, to attack and, and uh, just sort of uh, de, de, um, just de, uh, take apart their, any potential challenges to their power. And that is a very interesting situation. You, you would think like if, if you had a society in the past where you know, all of the elite institutions from the media to Congress to everything else had uh, you know, less than 20% approval ratings, you'd think, oh, there's gonna be a revolution. <laughs> like there's, for sure, there's gonna be a revolution of some kind or something's gonna happen. I could see a situation where 
all of those things basically have zero legitimacy. They have 5% approval and it's nothing but like the federal bureaucracy and the people who work in the media and whatever else, but their ability to go in and break up any nascent resistance networks or anything like that is so powerful and so granular because of this DIY totalitarian system that we've built for ourselves using digital technology um, that maybe it could go on a hell of a lot longer than it ever could have before. Um, now, you know, it's it's hard to say, you know, because the other, you know, maybe the the, the limiting factor on that is that um, the the type of elites that a society uh, raises up under those conditions are not particularly impressive people, and they're very often and 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 virtually always actually anymore subject to all of the same forces that the mob is subject to and following the same base impulses. So. You know, maybe they're not thinking that far ahead, and that's our that's our only hope. <laughs> well, let's think about it this way. I'll I'll go back to Caesar and how Nietzsche's involved in there, too. Um, let's think about it this way, though. It's hard to predict where things are going to go because we are in a novel situation. We are in a novel predicament right now because of technology and because of digital technology. And it seems to me, I mean, the whole. Uh, reason the whole scope of our conversation when I had Yarvin on was that the essay he wrote that we discussed he specifically says that uh, the digital technology that 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 mass mobilization is over it's gone and we're not going to have a revival of uh, we're not gonna have a replay of the early 20th century now the question I have for you is do you think we're going to have a replay uh, of the early 20th century where fascists and 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 socialists are battling it out uh, I talked about this a lot in the show and the answer always seems to be no. And I tend to agree. And one of the reasons that they, people think the answer is no is because the way digital technology atomizes people and we don't see social movements like we used to. Um, and we don't see uh, social like gatherings in the same way that we used to see them. Well, it's, Which, it's like uh, Byung-Chul Han says in that book, you turn me on. Yeah. Swarms don't march. Right. Which, which all of that is correct. But it, it ignores a different reality. And the, and the different reality is that digital technology, the flip side of that coin, right, is that it mobilizes people more than it ever has before. Because the biggest gathering, the biggest march like of all time in America was the, the, the women's march. And that was in like 2017. And they organized that using, you know, digital technology. And then also the Trump phenomena itself um, you know, a, a lot of what he did, he was able to ride uh, to power, at least in large part, maybe you could say wholly because of his uh, constant touring and his constant rallies where he was bringing people out in, in real life in people were going into meat space and gathering together to listen to this guy talk. But he was able to organize that because he was so effective at wielding digital technology. Uh, so I do think we have the conditions that are such that the digital technology can actually bring something like a Caesar into being. Because while I recognize and I don't really take issue with anything that you said, uh, think about the fact, right, that Elon Musk is one of these guys. OK, Elon Musk is one of the potential Caesar figures Be just because of the position he's in, because he's famous. He's got a huge following. And he's uh, the richest man in the world. So I think it's irrefutable that his purchase of Twitter is him uh, casting his lot in with American politics. There's no real other way to look at it, in my opinion. He's already the richest man in the world. 
Okay. And I do think he could turn Twitter into a, a money-making machine and everyone knows it's not living up to, to its potential because it's captured by ideology and because it's being wielded by the people you're talking about in the way you're talking about. I mean, they did, they, they were part, a big part of the total media blackout on a sitting president. So that's an example of, of what you're talking about, the unprecedented ability they have to clamp down. But at the same time, the flip side of that coin is it gives someone like Musk the ability to uh, fr- to jump in, to jump into the fray. And um, uh, I guess the last thing I'll say, I could, I could go on, but I want to hear what you say about um, that potential, number one. Number two, if you think there will be a replay of the early 20th century in some capacity, in some uh, 21st century version. But lastly, you know, Musk, if Musk was doing this just for money, would he be tweeting so much about free speech? Would he be tweeting so much about the, the, the potential now that he owns Twitter? Would he ever even mention it if he didn't want to wield it uh, in that way? Yeah, I, oh, I think it's obvious he's not doing it for the money. And that he is even not doing it as a vanity project in the same way that like some billionaire might buy the Washington Post. Totally agreed. Totally agreed. It's certainly a political action. And he clearly understands it that way because obviously, uh, as he said, he very much expects and expected the uh, political firestorm that came down on him as a result of it. And so that was a conscious choice he made knowing that that was going to happen. I will say, um, you know, maybe I'm just a little too jaded by this point, but like part of me just imagines that, that like, I can't, I can't imagine the intelligence agencies and the other organizations uh, that, you know, Twitter is something that can start revolutions. It can uh, drive social movements. It can throw elections. Um, Especially if you take big tech, like as a, as a, as a group, Um, you know, you would, you would think that like the CIA would almost be not doing their job if they hadn't infiltrated and ensured that they could exercise at least some level of control over these organizations. And so that if, if they man, you know, if he manages to get control of these things, again, maybe I'm just too jaded, but I would assume that at least some deal has been made about like certain boundaries about how he can behave and, and what he can do or certain things he still has to allow to be done. I, and I don't know. Uh, that's a, uh, um, we'll see how it develops. Well, like, it's hate- hard for me to imagine given that weapon up. But I agree with you. And I'm going to I'm going to jump in here. I know I asked you a bunch of questions and I'm I'm interrupting before I let you answer them. But uh, I've considered this and I've talked about this with people. And I have said, right, I have said, like, there's no way they're going to they're going to give this up. There's no way they're going to let this go easily. They know what they're losing with Twitter and they're, they're going to do something and they're probably going to have to do something illegal. You know, I've talked to lawyers about this and and people who are more in the know, people who are in you know Silicon Valley about this. And they all say, Oh, there's nothing the government can do. Then there's nothing the government can do. Well, we're we're really in a situation here. We really are. We're really in a situation here that I think is unprecedented, at least in, in modern American history, because what we're faced with is either the government is going to have to do something. Uh, they're going to have to strong arm Musk in some probably illegal way into keeping it within the parameters that they want it to be kept in, or Musk is going to brazenly override their interests and their wishes and and do what he wants to do with Twitter, uh, which could potentially result in taking power in some way. Because right now, uh, I don't know what it would look like, but uh, right now you have Peter Thiel, another billionaire, 
backing people like Blake Masters and J.D. Vance, two politicians that I wholeheartedly endorse, and I hope they go all the way. Um, I think if nothing else, if Musk has political ambitions, he would probably have to do something like that. Um, and who better to do that with than fucking Blake Masters? I mean, that guy's he's great. He's great. Yeah, I've talked to him a few times. He's oh, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Sorry, I, I didn't know that, that though. Uh, but you see, you see what I'm saying? Like, this is potentially our Rubicon moment here, because if the defense industry or the intelligence agencies or uh, some sort of political infrastructure or agency attempts to stop Musk from having this as his personal, you know, propaganda tool, that will be a Rubicon moment for Musk. Like, what does he want to do with Twitter? And is he going to brazenly overstep them? He seems like maybe he would. And this is why I said Nietzsche is relevant to this here, because I've read, you know, I've read, I've grappled with Zarathustra more than any of his other books because his other books are easily accessible to me. I think, I think, I mean, I, I don't mean to me, I mean to anyone, but Zarathustra is very difficult and it's very nuanced. And he, the, the, the traits that Zarathustra embodies are not the things that a normal person can get away with. And that's why Nietzsche had to come up later with the concept of the subterranean, because if someone goes around acting like Zarathustra, they're going to end up in prison or, or they're going to be killed. All right. So I think the Ubermensch is the Caesar figure because the Ubermensch, it has the power for whatever reason. And Spengler talks explicitly about how he has to have money behind him because Caesar and Crassus and Pompey and Sulla and all of them had power and money behind them. So they have to have all these resources to be able to act like the Ubermensch. Uh, and they don't stay their hand. Uh, and they don't use uh, conventional social and uh, moral, you know, uh, mores in the way that they interact with other people. So we saw, right, we saw these congressional hearings somewhere between 2017 and 2019. I, I can't remember exactly when it was, when they brought all the social media companies to heal. And they were all dragged in front of Congress, Google, Facebook and Twitter, and they were just turned into propaganda uh, arms of the state and they all capitulated. Right. Zuckerberg is happy to do so. But Dorsey, I think it fucked Dorsey up. I don't think he liked doing it. Um, and that's why he was so happy to see Musk come along. So anyway, the point I'm making here is that. Can Musk be kowtowed by them in the same way? I don't think he can, you know, and I'm not going to like grandiosely proclaim him to be the seizure figure. But if you read a book like uh, Mike Duncan's excellent Storm Before the Storm, are you aware of this book? I am aware of it. I actually haven't read it. I just kind of figured it was a summary of his podcast on on Rome. No, so not I'll at check all. it out then. It's Great. you could potentially read it in one sitting. I didn't. But um, he's drawing parallels between the fall of the Roman Empire or excuse me, parallels between the fall of the Roman Republic and the rise of the American Empire to today's time. And uh, I'm, I'm basically convinced now that we're at a fall of the Republic stage and not a fall of the empire stage. And that's one of the main questions I want to ask you. So and Spangler yeah, would agree with that. OK, well. would you? you know, I mean, because that's because that's another way of talking about like the transition from culture to civilization. Yes, that's right. right. Do you think I mean, what do you think about that? It looks like we're having because you see the thing that book I already was kind of conscientious of it, but the thing that book lays out in explicit details, there's a chronology where you have a Marius and you have a Sulla and you have the Gracchi brothers, which was prior to them. Uh, and then you have the first triumvirate and you have Pompey, Caesar, and the second triumvirate. And it's this long, slow, like decline, I guess you could call it, into uh, the empire. Or, I mean, is it a fall or is it a, a well, growth? I don't know. Ascension? Not, if, not if you ask the people at the time. 
Right. You know, every every Roman would tell you that things were better after Augustus won the war and took over and became emperor than they had been for the last century. And I mean, we really have to think about the fact that like, you know, what were the Gracchi brothers like, like 120, 130 BC or something like that. And then you basically get up to just before the time of Christ when, uh, when Augustus consolidates his authority. And so you're talking about an entire century, a little over an entire century of just, you know, there are big outbursts of like conflict, like the social wars and the, you know, the, the intra-elite wars. But even besides, like in between that, it was just this always, there was always the threat of conflict erupting. There was social and political conflict that was short of war all the time, you know, like I, I remember Mulbug somewhere asked a question to somebody. He said, um, you know, he was talking about this subject and he said, you know, do you think that people today, if they were able to take a secret ballot, you know, nobody knew what their vote was or whatever. Um, they said, look, uh, here's the deal. Like you'll get an emperor, right? So you don't get to vote anymore or anything like that. Like that's all done. But all of this like racial conflict, all of this, like, you know, just all of these culture, that's all done. Would you take that deal? You know, like participatory political communities degenerate because, it, you know, it's not, if you look at the histories of the ones that have existed, it's not because usually it's not because just some elite dictator, you know, elite is so power hungry and he decides that he's going to take everything over and he does it by force of arms just as an expression of his own ego or something. It happens because people get tired of it. People are just like, and you see this more and more now today in like the United States where people are just looking around and like, you know, I would love to just not have to think about politics at all ever again, or maybe think about it once every four years. So that would be amazing to go back to, wouldn't it? And I think a lot of people think that it probably would be, you know, I, I think that like conservatives and people on the right in general, tend to have that mentality in general that, you know, they, they would much prefer, and this is, this is one of the reasons that the left has run wild in the last, you know, ever since they started getting aggressive and took control of institutions over the last several decades is that people on the right, you know, they want to focus on their families and their jobs and they want to make some money and like do all these things that like a, a society actually that the political ex system exists to make sure that those things can happen. Like that, but those are the core kind of elements of, what keeps this society going, what most people should be consumed with most of the time. It's just that they've kind of realized, especially over the last decade or so, that like, we, we can't, we can't just like go, you know, ignore this stuff anymore because, uh, you know, our fourth graders are coming home from school saying they want to get a sex change, you know, because these people just can't, you know, we have no choice but to engage in this culture war or in this political war now. But I think that a lot of people more and more uh, you know, find themselves arriving at a point, and this certainly happened in Rome, people welcomed Caesar with a sigh of relief. And you, you know, you couldn't have found a, a serious Roman, uh, you know, just, or not even serious, just, just your average Roman citizen after Augustus had consolidated his authority, who didn't think that it was the best thing that had happened in the last century. And, uh, you know, this, it's like, I think it's kind of a myth, this idea that, you know, people are just on some, you know, there, there's some like thumatic way that they 
they insist they must have a say in like how, you know how their state is navigated or something. I don't think that's that's really true. You can you can you know propagandize people into getting whipped up into that mode, you know, in general, but it's not particularly lasting. Most people don't want to do that, you know, and if you do have a society, you think about politics in general, politics is a, is an activity. It's a domain of, of activity that, you know, it, 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 it encourages uh, us versus them thinking it encourages paranoia. It encourages just all of these things that if you're not really like in a, like a strongly emotionally stable person, uh, you know, being engaged in politics 24 seven all the time can, can drive you over the edge. Like it's not, it's something that like, even, even people who are bred for it, you know, who, who like James Forstall maybe, or James Jesus Angleton, all these guys who like, you know, uh, become paranoid and, and conspiratorial and, and, you know, uh, really just like degenerate as a result of being submerged in that world. You see it with like, you, you hear about it all the time with like intelligence agents and stuff who go over the edge and they gotta basically be put on leave while they get their shit together because it takes its toll. And, um, you know, if you just tell everybody as we've done really like in a new way, it, like it, st it started in the televisual age, you know, where everybody's turning on the nightly news and seeing v the Vietnam war, the protests and, and so forth. But nowadays, you know, it is just an increasing percentage of the population that is engaged politically, at least on some level, like from morning until night, every single day. And that is something that will drive any society insane, because a good portion of any population is not going to be psychologically or emotionally fit to and be involved with that. This is why I and brought up. Oh, go ahead. Finish your thought. I'm no, sorry. no, no. That was that was finished. I'm running on. I was going to say this is why I brought up the early 20th century, because it's that type of thing that sets people what you're talking about, sets people at each other's throats because the woke are forcing this on us. And they're kind of like forcing uh, regular people to act and engage in this stuff when they clearly weren't before. Yeah. Yeah. And a Caesar figure in a way is like somebody who comes along to those people and says, um, you know, give me the, give me the power to do it and I'll take care of this. And the people say all right, we're going to close our eyes. You do what you have to do to, to, to resolve the situation and make it so that we don't have to be in a cultural and political war, you know, all of the time anymore and just put it to an end. And um, that's the deal that the Caesar makes with the people. And then obviously like the Caesar, now these are people, it's, it's very significant that these are always uh, from, from uh, you know, Caesar himself to uh, I would say, you know, like, like, Spangler thinks of Napoleon as an Alexander figure, you know, at least in our sort of development. And there's, look, there's, it, it, it fits very nicely in the sense that he was this conqueror who swept out across like this, uh, all of Europe and didn't just install political authority, but brought cultural change to all of these places and integrated the whole continent in a way that it hadn't before. And that the colonial period that followed and that, um, that, 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 in that period of, that first period of globalization in the 19th century was like the Hellenistic period, you know, after Alexander's conquest. And that's certainly true, but all of these figures, you know, and, and I guess you would just have to be this way, obviously have, uh, they've got massive egos and they're very much doing this for their own purposes. You know, these are not, these are not people who, uh, but they're not doing it for wealth. You know, wealth wouldn't do it for, for these people. They're doing it because they have uh, like a Nietzschean will to power that forces them to do it. And, um, 
you know, we're in a period now where like, you know, I don't think that anybody who isn't already famous, like very famous and independently wealthy could probably ever replicate what Trump did. It would have to be like an Elon Musk figure or somebody, because, you know, kind of like we were talking about, like right now, if they really think you're a threat, you get up to 50,000 Twitter followers and they zap you and that's a wrap, you know, that's you. You'd have to be somebody who has enough cultural clout to, uh, to, to at least get yourself over that initial hump. It's one of the reasons, by the way, like, you know, I've been following what's been going on with the Libertarian Party over the last couple months. And, you know, I, I'm not a Libertarian by any stretch of the imagination. I'd give the Libertarians a lot of hell, but uh, the, the party was just taken over at their national um, yep. conference. The, or whatever. the Von Mises people. Which is essentially like a right-wing libertarianism. Um, you know, I'd still have plenty to disagree with those guys on. But one of the things I was I was talking to one of those guys about that I think that that you know that that is not a look. They're never going to win the presidency. They're never actually probably even going to elect a senator. Um, but it's still a very valuable thing to do because the Libertarian Party is this institution that exists that has enough sort of cultural cachet and enough history behind it that it would be much more difficult to cancel than like uh, the proud boys or something. Right. It would like, it would be tougher to do to like, just say you don't get a Twitter account and you're not allowed to be an organization. So like it has that weight. And so controlling an institution like that at the very least creates a sort of dark age monastery where you can have an intellectual environment that puts out ideas that can't really be easily squashed, you know, and there, and there are actually for, uh, you know, I tell right-wing people all the time that there are, there are a lot of uh, institutions all over the country kind of like that, that are just waiting for someone to come along and pick them up. Like what's anybody doing with the American Legion these days? Right. I don't know. But like, if it were taken over by some really dynamic and motivated people and put to good use, like, you know, you can't just cancel the American Legion. It's been around too long. It's got too much cultural cachet. You know, there's 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 a lot of things like that that actually are out there and um, and could be put to good use. This is a big big reason why I've thrown my lot in with Yarvin and Moldbug. Well, they're the same guy. With but Moldbug said in unqualified reservations that that's what we need to do. And not only that. But he uh, aligned himself with like the Von Mises version of libertarianism. And then this is just one example where the type of thing he's talking about needs to happen and is, is a good thing that's going to help us in the future has come to pass. Uh, uh, many things, these things have come to pass. Now, uh, something interesting talking about Caesarism and, and uh, Musk is um, I don't want to get too like woo woo here. But somewhere in Decline of the West, right, Spengler says that the, the spirit of a culture is eventually going to die. It's inevitable and it's going to go out and people are just going to be at some point going through the motions and eventually the civilization will decline into decadence and it will go on in per- perpetuity until it finally collapses. But it could be centuries between the death of the spirit of that culture and the death of that civilization. And he says that the uh, last place he sees the Faustian spirit alive is in the civilization of South Africa. And he says that when South Africa goes under, that will be the end of the Faustian spirit. Now, now, uh, Spengler says the Faustian spirit was born in northern Germany. And it was, uh, well, we could talk about this another time, what the Faustian spirit is. But in my opinion, the culmination or the apex of the Faustian spirit is the space program. It's the last 
kind of gasp of of the Faustian spirit asserting itself in the world. And of course, the space program is totally built on German rocket technology. Now, here's what I find very interesting, and I'm really paying attention. You know, it's to funny this. how it's funny how we kind of stopped going to space after all the paperclip guys died. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. The uh, I, you know what I can make some off-color jokes or, or maybe on-color jokes, but I won't about uh, some movies that came out about who's really behind the space program. And if that were true, maybe we'd be we'd have a colony out there. But the point I'm trying to make, right, is Spengler says that when South Africa goes under, the spirit of the Faustian uh, will be will be done. And interestingly, the space program kind of winded down and never made any more progress right around the same time South Africa went under. And yet here we have this guy that I'm talking about as like the potential Spenglerian Caesar figure being <laughs> A South African yeah, who yeah. is trying to revive the space program. <laughs> and it's, very, it's almost all yeah. too good, perfect for me not to like develop this insight. Yeah, that's great. I, I've been reading Spangler for 20 years and actually like I never thought that's that's actually very interesting. <laughs> so so anyway, um, well, look, let's let's uh, we got a little bit more time here. So let's let's address my last two topics here. The first one is just going to be fodder for me. And my audience, we're going to talk about my favorite book, Blood Meridian, which I somehow got the impression that that's one of your favorite books. You must have said that somewhere. Sure. Yeah. Or it's a book you like, right? Of course. Yeah. All right. So let's let's end on that. Before we get there, the last thing I want to say about what we're talking about here is that, again, the the Caesar figure came during the second religiousness chapter in Spengler. So it's very much tied up with uh, a, a religious longing in the heart of the people. And you said people get tired and Spengler also says people get tired. And you said they get tired of politics, which is true, but they also get tired. And this is a quote from Spengler. They get tired of materialism because mm -hmm. when you live in a materialistic society, right? Everything is reduced to rationalism. And it's, it's this uh, conscious psychic weight on society that they have to like, uh, perpetuate themselves through the force of their own will. And Spengler says that, like, if you um, revert to religiousness, you're, you're kind of like, well, to use Freud's term, sublimating, you're giving up that responsibility over to uh, a godlike figure, right? But because at that phase, because it's a late phase, uh, the, the, the people don't really have the, the naive faith that they had in the earlier faith phase of the civilization. They don't have the naive faith in God that a, a little child has in their parent, right? So he calls it like a color wash or like a mimicry of the earlier phase. The second religiousness is uh, people growing tired of the materialism, tired of nihilism, and wanting to give it up and revert to faith. And you know, real, real quick, I'm sorry, I just- Yeah, um, yeah that's- the, uh, one of the one of the examples he brings up, he points out just to make like he anticipated that maybe this is what people would have thought he was talking about. He says he's not talking about like uh, a lot of the occult stuff that was absolutely going on at the time. What he does point out is um, like Islam in the period, that, like in the later period after it had kind of calcified into this. Uh, you know, and you know, a great book that I think is just it's it it tells the story of the second religiousness and everything you're saying just fits perfect with it is uh, Welbeck's submission. Oh yeah. I, I have that book on my shelf, it's but just, I've only read it, serotonin it, by him. The story of what you're talking about. right Oh, now. perfect. Great perfect. Book. Well, this is good though, because I talk about this all the time and you're literally the first person who understands that differentiation, that the, that the uh, proliferation of cults 
is the precursor to the second religiousness. The second right. religiousness is a return to the original religion that founded the culture. And I see it uh, this this whole Tradcath thing, right? Because the Catholic religion is the one that founded Western civilization, as Spengler puts it in the year 1000. Anyway, there's got to be a question in here for you. The question in here for you is, um, are you seeing... Oh, oh, so, but he says that because it's not a naive faith, right? It has to get transposed onto something real and it gets transposed onto the Caesar figure and it gets transposed into emperor worship. And if you look at all the rites and all the prayers and the incantations of the Catholic religion, they are directly derived from the rituals that the Senate had to go through to venerate the emperor. Uh, all of the prayers, everything, the whole Catholic mass is a transposition of emperor worship back into religiousness. And I feel like we already saw the stirrings of that with Trump, with the way people venerated him. I don't know, man. I, I thought I had a question you know, I, there for you. I guess one, just, one of the great, <laughs> one of the great regrets, one of the great regrets of my life uh, is that back in 2016, I never got around to go into one of those rallies. I know several people who have, and you know, they say it's, it's, it's not just like, it's not like being at the Super Bowl or something like that, where it's just loud and exciting and you can feel the energy, like all those things exist at like a heavyweight championship fight or something. They describe it like it was, and these are not hardcore Trump people who just love the man, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they, they describe it like it was a, it was a gigantic religious festival. That's the only thing that they could really draw on to describe what it was like. And I, I, I will always regret that I didn't make it to one of those things because it won't well, be the same. It wasn't the same in 2020 and it won't be the same in 2024. So <laughs> what do you think if I said it was like um, Trump had all of the ingredients to be the Caesar figure for America, but he just didn't cross the Rubicon? Yeah, I, yeah there you go. Would and you I agree? Mean, and, yeah, sure. And it, it, I think probably it, that was a uh, generational limitation that he had oh, yeah you know, yeah still a boomer and still um you know and it's it's not something you know people i know like kind of on in our neck of the woods tend to uh get down on him for that you know the fact that he you know the supreme court like the fact that like the democrats could just go judge hunting for some judge that would put an obviously ridiculous ruling to stop something he was doing and everybody knows when it gets to the supreme court four years from now it's going to get struck down but who cares that he wouldn't just uh, kind of say, yeah, well, you know, how many divisions does the Supreme Court? Control? Exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. And people get down on him for that. And I understand they want that aggression. Um, and that is the feeling that desire is what will eventually lead to the rise of the Caesar figure. But, you know, at the same time, it's, it's an it's a it's an American virtue, too. You know, right. like my, my grandfather was as right wing as they came. You know, he uh he shaped a lot of my politics in the 90s when like Waco was happening, things like that. And, you know, but he still thought of everything in terms of uh, the Constitution and like he was still like defending something that I would argue to him really doesn't exist anymore. And um, it's going to take somebody who realizes that that world is past and that we're in a new one where you're not. There, there's no Roman Republic to defend. You know, you can create a new order. That is one, you know, in which people can live and, and have decent lives uh, and something to care about and believe in. But but that the thing that that old thing is 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 gone and it's not coming back. 
Very well said. You know, there was there was one thing. You know what? We'll talk about it again because it's going to be a whole long actual conversation. So let's. I, I got uh, some few other things I wanted to talk about, but it would literally take another two hours. So let's okay. this again sometime. Good. I, I I skipped a lot too. Yeah, I would love to have you back, man. And one of the things I like about the, your approach is that um, you you know a lot about film and and literature, and you incorporate that into it, even though that's not really the 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 bent of your show. Um, so I've always appreciated that. Somewhere you must have mentioned Blood Meridian. Because I had it in my mind as one of your favorite books. But just to your point earlier, just a quick comment before we finish the show today. Uh, just to your point earlier about how the woke folk force everything on us. One of my taglines is that I'm not interested in po- in politics. I feel it's been forced upon me. What I really want to do, man, is just talk about movies and books and, and like nerd out on that shit. And I'm glad you mentioned Houellebecq because I didn't know where to go next. I'll read submission. But Blood Meridian... Um, I guess a way to talk, we, we kind of skipped Nietzsche for the most part, but I, I once tweeted, if you really want to understand Cormac McCarthy, read Nietzsche, because I didn't know what to do with a lot of McCarthy's books. And then after reading Nietzsche, like the whole thing made sense. His whole body of work made sense. And I know he's read Nietzsche. And the American version of the blonde beast, right, would be the frontiersman or the cowboy, in my opinion. And um, that book chronicles the death of that, figure and the epilogue has the little guy scuttling along behind the, the collecting the bones and like those are the people who are ushered in by that by that period so you know i could i could ask a question or prompt you but um would you say that's one of your favorite books or what oh, do yeah, you for sure. yeah for sure yeah, what do absolutely. you think of uh, mccarthy overall is he um have you read how many of his books have you read and uh six or seven maybe yeah me too me too um he's great obviously i don't think anybody thinks that he probably ever matched blood meridian again but that's fine homer probably never matched the right. Iliad or the odyssey right. um you know he one of the things i love about mccarthy is um and i do this a lot i did it you know uh in my nietzsche and dostoevsky episode is looking at the biography of an author and putting it side by side with the development of their work and you know mccarthy's this very interesting he's got this very interesting trajectory where you read all of his books and I mean, it's just, you know, you get to the end of Blood Meridian and if you're waiting for something good to happen, you're going to yeah. keep on waiting because it just <laughs> doesn't come. You know, yep. this is a dark, dark world. And, um, you know, the forces that rule over it are not the ones that have uh, human prerogatives at, at the center of their attention. And um, he does that in one way or another in pretty much all of his books. And then you get up to the road which was written later as more recent book. And now McCarthy uh, had his first kid, his first son in his fifties. And the road was written after he had his first son. And the road is such a fascinating book. I know some people like even McCarthy fans, some people aren't, aren't real big on it. Um, Some people thought the movie was boring. I I love both of them, but uh, the road is, this, you know, 99.9% of the book is the exact same thing. It is just unremitting horror and darkness and everything is dead. I mean, there, it's got the cannibalism know, element. Yeah. It, it, it literally uh, takes place in a world that is either post nuclear or maybe it's been hit by a comet. It doesn't really tell you. It just starts with everything is dead. All the plants are dead. Uh, just the, 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 the sky is constantly overcast and raining ash. The landscape is gray and ruined. And there are essentially roving bands of cannibals out there um, surviving as the last generation of men on earth. So it's all over. It's all finished. It's all done. And 
you have the, the center, uh, the central figures are a man and his son. And you just call him the man and the boy. And these two characters, like the, the, the man has, the boy's maybe like, what, 10 years old, something like that. And, Adolescent. Uh, and they are on a quest. They want to get to the coast. And uh, as they're going along, the father keeps telling the son that they have to survive and they have to keep going and they have to make it to the coast because the two of them are carrying the fire. That's the way he puts it to him. And why are they trying to go to the coast? Is it, they don't have any idea that there's going to be anything there. It's just, uh, that's, that's just their quest. That's where they're going. And so you have this idea like, uh, uh, you know, if you, if you think about like, like, there's another movie. Have you ever seen Life is Beautiful? The one with uh, Roberto Benigni? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's got a similar theme, I think, to The Road, right? Where okay. it's not this post-apocalyptic oh, okay. world. It's a uh, concentration camp. You know, they're in Auschwitz or whatever. And he's in there with his son. And he's coming up with these. He, he wants to protect the innocence of his son in the most horrible environment imaginable. He's in hell, basically, right? Um, the concentration camp in this one uh, in The Road, it's that they're in this post-apocalyptic wasteland. It's all, it's just the worst imaginable scenario. And both of these men want to protect the innocence of their son. That's their driving force. And the way they do that is they come up with a myth, essentially, that gives them uh, a myth in the Sorellian sense, you know, where it's, it's sort of giving them motivating and directive, you know, uh, action, getting to the coast or, you know, that he, um, you know, the, the father in, uh, Life is beautiful tells his son that all of this, the guards, um, all of the work they have to do, all the other inmates, that it's one giant game. And if you win the game, then you get a tank. That's what you get. And so yeah. it, it becomes like, you know, he has to come up with these increasingly comical and elaborate explanations to explain why this evil guard is actually like in on the joke and everything. And the goal at always is to protect the innocence of his son as long as possible just as you know in the road he, he does it, and to provide him with like forward-looking motivation to get to some place now you know I, I i love putting those two uh those two stories side by side because i mean if you think about it like you know we're, we're all in that world today like we're all in that concentration camp things are there right now like but i mean we all have to live with the knowledge that everything we care about is going to go away that everybody we love is going to die or we're going to die first and they're going to feel this way about us. Um, that if you accept the, uh, you know, the sort of modern scientific materialist explanation of, uh, of reality, you know, we might, maybe we colonize Mars someday or whatever, but eventually the sun's going to go supernova. And even if we get better than that, eventually the galaxy is just going to fizzle out and it's all going to end. And the most, profound and beautiful things that you've ever, the, the, the most beautiful thoughts that any human being has ever had, whether Shakespeare or Isaiah or what, it's not going to matter. That all of it is just this fleeting little ripple on the ocean and none of it matters. And now you got to get up the next day and every day and go through your life in a way that creates meaning because for better or worse, the curse uh, and glory of, of humanity is that, um, you know, we, we, we live in a world, uh, we, we, we demand and seek meaning uh, compulsively and live in a world that can continually, uh, you know, defies our, our attempts to establish it and, um, and thwarts our, our, our attempts to establish it. And so 
We have to figure out how to do that. We have to figure out how to live in that world where we have that knowledge because we don't live in that safe cocoon of like a, you know, an old traditional religious society or something. And um, how do you do that? And in McCarthy's previous books, he was like, well, you die, you, you, you know, the <laughs> yeah. darkness comes over you and that's what happens. But at the very end of uh, the road, there's one of the very few like glimmers of hope in any of his books. You know, he has that little fish with like the um, with the the markings on the back that look like the you know a, a map on there. It's just such a beautiful. Uh, and it's the only living creature beside like cannibal humans and stuff that you've seen the entire the entire book. And you know, it's this idea that like um, you can live in that. You can actually in that world, in the worst of all possible worlds, you can actually create meaning for yourself through something as simple as your love for your son. And I don't think that that is something that McCarthy was really capable of understanding until he had his son in his, you know, in his, in his mid fifties. And um, yeah, he's a, he's a brilliant writer. He's great. Um, he's a, he's a, you know, a religious writer in a lot of ways, I think it's and it's most fruitful to understand his work from a religious standpoint. I agree, man. Well, that was excellent. Listen, we're uh, we're just about out of time here, unfortunately. So maybe we will do a, a hermeneutics of the Blood Meridian another time, or who knows? The best conversations are always the ones that lead to uh, myriad other conversations off all the things you couldn't get to that you touched on. So um, I would love to have you back sometime. Anytime, uh, man. And tell Gio if he wants to talk one of these days, he can come on. Or um, yeah, anytime. This was this was fun. Love it. I wasn't going to say that, but shout out to Gio Panicetti. I talked to him behind the scenes and said, hey, I've been talking to Daryl Cooper and we'd love to do an episode with the three of us. And he was, of course, immediately agreed. So we'll set that up. Maybe that'll be the next thing we do together. But uh, in the meantime, check out astroflight.substack.com. Check out martyrmade.substack.com. And you're on Twitter as at martyrmade. I don't really think I need to tell our audience this, but, uh, and find me at AFSCast, A-F-S-C-A-S-T on Twitter. And uh, we'll see you all then. Thank you for tuning in. Daryl, thank you so much for your time. This was phenomenal. It was fun, man. Anytime. All right.